Cars, start your engines! Hit the pace car! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect! When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. It's him. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey race fans, welcome to uh, the Hoobazoo Radio Network. Welcome to another edition of Drafting the Circuits Radio. My name is Frank Santoroski. I'll be your host for the next two hours as we wrap up 2017. Um, in a grand fashion, let me introduce you to the panel we have assembled tonight. Uh, first off, uh, a gentleman who has spent the better part of three decades involved in the sport. Uh, Gray Warren, how are you tonight? Doing well. How about you, sir? Doing very, very well. Uh, also, a uh, guy who's got uh, experience with race teams on both sides of the pond, Richard Uden. Richard, how are you this evening? I'm very good, thank you. Hope everybody else is doing well. All right, and then we've got the NASCAR correspondent for Motorsports Tribune, Seth Eggert. Seth, how are you tonight? I'm doing good. All right, the managing editor and CEO of Motorsports Tribune and writer for IndyCar.com, Joey Barnes. Hi. Hi. Hi, Joey. Also uh, joining us tonight, guest panelist uh, Josh Farmer. Feels like forever since I've, since I've been on here, but I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad you guys had me back. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you coming back. So uh, let's uh, start off tonight on a bit of a sad note. Um, uh, legendary NASCAR team owner, Hall of Famer Bud Moore. Uh, passed away. Uh, I believe he was uh, 92, uh, 92 or 93. Um, but Bud's been, uh, you know, legendary name in the sport for a long time. You know, going back to uh, going back to the old days. I mean, I probably remember him best running uh, Ricky Rudd and uh, Bobby Allison uh, in the 80s. But uh, Gray, you've been in, involved in the sport for a long time. You probably crossed paths with Bud Moore. So uh, let's. Um, what are your thoughts on, on Bud Moore and what he meant to the sport? Uh, Bud Moore was uh, was an icon in the sport, no doubt. Uh, one of the one of the early pioneers. Uh, he was a car owner for many of the greats in the sport. Uh, a lot a lot of the greats have driven for him over the years. He he was uh, you know of course uh, a staple in stock car racing, but he he branched out in the Trans Am series back in the seventies. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, actually, and had had drivers like George Fulmer and Dan Gurney and Parnelli Jones, among a few that that drove his car. He was very successful in that, very successful NASCAR owner. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, he was a uh, he was a World War II veteran. He was a, a, a tank driver in, in World War II. He uh, he was uh, was a, was an American hero and. Uh, you know he's one of the one of the one of the dying breed in our sport. Uh, that's uh, our connection to the past. Uh, men like Bud Moore, Glenn and Leonard Wood, Dale Inman, Richard Petty. Uh, a lot of those guys are are up in their uh, 
up in their 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, when they're gone, a lot of the history of the sport's going to be gone. And and I, for one, am very sad to see Bud Bud go. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of good memories of him uh, walking around the racetrack for many, many years. Uh, A lot of great stories that that he could tell. But, uh, you know, and he he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, very, very deserving honor that he got uh, several years ago. And, uh, you know, he'll he'll always be remembered for, for what he meant to the sport. He was he was an innovator and uh, and a racer. I guess that's you know, that's the highest compliment you can pay to anybody in our business is is to refer them to refer to them as a racer. And, and, and Bud indeed was that. Now, Seth, uh, you're a keen follower of NASCAR as well. Um, and, you know, you've not been around long as a gray or I. But uh, I know uh, you've uh, you're a keen historian of the sport too. So what are, what are your some thoughts on Bud Moore? Well, Bud Moore's had some of the greats in NASCAR drive for him: Dale Earnhardt, Buddy Baker, as Gray alluded to, Bobby Allison, Ricky Rudd. Uh, even before he got involved in the sport, he was a hero. He went and he fought in World War II. He stormed the beaches of Normandy. He single-handedly capture an entire German regiment or company. I forget exactly how many people it was. But overall, he was a hero to many, not just for what he did in the sport, but what he did outside the sport. Uh, he'll definitely be missed. Absolutely. And our thoughts are with his, his family and those close to him. So, um, you know, rest in peace, Bud Moore. Um, true inspiration to the sport. Like like Gray said, one of the legends, one of the greats, um, and that that whole breed is is dying off now, and it's sad as we, you know, the next generation is coming to take over the sport. So, but let's turn our attention to the final Formula One race of the season at the Yas Marina Circuit uh, out there in Abu Dhabi. Um, beautiful little racetrack, uh, cool race. Um, Lewis Hamilton went in there saying he wanted to win, but uh, it was Valtteri Bottas who. Uh, bested him in qualifying and on the track um you know after the fact lewis downplayed it a little bit uh said he really didn't try that hard but i don't know if that's the case but uh a lot of uh storylines in there in the middle of the pack there um you know after the 30 second gap between the mercedes and the rest of the world on the track there so uh richard uh you you watched the race out there uh, what are your thoughts coming out of uh, abu dhabi um i think you're seeing a lot of um, what we saw at the tail end of uh, 2016 there. Sorry, 2015, where Lewis wraps up the championship early and then goes on this little slump for the last few races. Now, he says he hasn't been partying like he was out in uh, 2015, but I think he probably has been uh, on a few late nights. Uh, and, you know, he's let uh, Valtteri sort of get the better of him in the last few weeks. And in the same way that Rosberg did uh, going into 2016. So, you know, Lewis has got to be careful that he doesn't let it slip. Um, you know, the, the, he doesn't want history to repeat itself. You know, Valtteri's taken this opportunity to sort of, you know, make the, uh, make the guys at Mercedes remember that he's, um, you know, still around and that he's, um, you know, he, he's, uh, he's quick and he's competitive and he can get the job done when needed. And it was a very impressive drive from... Uh, Valtteri. Uh, there was one phase of the race where uh, Lewis was given a pretty simple instruction on brake bias, which is, is not unusual for the drivers in the middle of the race, and, and he gave a very agitated response. So, obviously, Lewis was trying, and uh, so Valtteri got under his skin a little bit this weekend, and uh, 
that could set up for a, a fantastic rivalry next year. Um, you know, hopefully it won't get as petulant as the uh, the Rosberg Hamilton uh, relationship got. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was uh, that end of things was was pretty interesting. There was an interesting dynamic potentially going on there. Um, further back in the pack, of course, I think that the, the most intense um, battle was probably between uh, the three teams for the, um, the was it sixth place in the championship, I believe, uh, between Renault, Toro Rosso and Haas. Uh, Renault, as I think has been the case for certainly the second half of the season, had that one covered reasonably well. Now they've got two drivers there in, um, in Hulkenberg and uh, Science Junior who can push each other reasonably hard. Um, I think they've stepped their game up, both on the driver's front and also the uh, technical side there. And they did the business. Both Toro Rosso, um, you're potentially lacking that Renault support, should we say, uh, with, with Toro Rosso going off to um, you know, the Honda engines next year. And also, of course, Renault naturally wanting their own works team to be the, you know, be the success there. Um, and, and Haas really have struggled the, the second half of the season with uh, reliability and uh, consistent performance on the car. So Renault did what they had to do. They, they got the job done there. They, numbers, uh, the difference there was ranging in about the 14 to $15 million mark. So uh, certainly quite a bit of cash, uh, you know, extra cash there for, uh, for the Renault team. And uh, probably that won't affect them. It, it's obviously a, probably a bigger loss to Haas and Toro Rosso than it is again to Renault with the factory backing now, but uh, it's setting itself up nicely for um, for 2018. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at the, the situation over this past weekend, and some of the key things I take away from it are, you know, first part, going to the Lewis-Valtteri thing, I don't really think, yeah, maybe Lewis was trying a little bit in the race, but let's be honest, Lewis knows that Valtteri is just a clear-cut number two. It's not like him and Rosberg. So the ability to be a team player a little bit more so because he knows that Valtteri is fighting to just get second place. Uh, you know, it's a mark for Mercedes. It helps Lewis. It helps everybody. So I think there was maybe more of that going on since he wrapped up the championship. But, um, but you I think, could argue the same thing back in sort of 2014-15 when Rosberg really, you know, couldn't hold anything to Hamilton with the odd couple of races, but again, was pretty much a clear number two. It was only really 2016 where Rosberg sort of stepped up and, uh, you know, got that, you know, put it to him, if you like, for want of a better yeah. phrase. And and maybe it was because he had a good end to 2015 that gave Rosberg the confidence. Maybe, but I, I look at that also as more so of the attitude structure built within the team. I mean, that was Rosberg's team before Lewis jumped on board. And he was essentially trying to knock Rosberg down a peg, and that wasn't going to happen. Um, not at least from Rosberg's point of view. I think you look at this situation, and, and it's Lewis's team now, and Volteri comes in knowing that he's kind of just got to – he had to earn his spot on the team and kind of be accepted from the group and go out there and do the job, and I think that's kind of the different dynamic that, that's being portrayed. But, um, you know, I mean, obviously this could be a stepping stone into next year. Not a lot changes except for a hyper soft tire, which was being tested the last couple of days, um, which Ferrari swept both test sessions, if that means anything. But I, I think um, the more I look at the, the dynamic of the season, the one underlying thing that I wanted to bring up is Fernando Alonso had never actually lost to a teammate um, you know, in a head-to-head -head battle at all ever in his career. 
And for all the glitz and glamour that and, and notes that we give Fernando Alonso for such a good run this year, and he was just such so strong at all these places, you know, putting in such a great run until his engine went kaboom. I, I think the the biggest thing I take away, Stoffel Van Dorn had a chance. Obviously, he didn't succeed. He finished 12th out of the points. Fernando finished in the points, and he didn't overthrow him. But the fact is, is we should be giving Stoffel Van Dorn a lot more props for the way he ran this season. Very under the radar, doing his thing to even have a chance to be in that conversation, uh, to be the first guy to upset Fernando, because Fernando has had some pretty notable teammates in his career. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think uh, kind of I want to reflect a little since this is the season finale show, what have you. Richard, uh, on this one, just bear with me on it. You feel like if we run into a situation, and I know we'll never know the answer to this, but playing what ifs a little bit here. I almost feel like if, if Rosberg was in the mix this year, one of two things would have happened. He would have continued to be in Lewis Hamilton's head, and they would have just had something so destructive that they would have it would have been so combative each and every race. It would have been to Mercedes' detriment, and I, you would have seen Vettel kind of sneak in there and, and steal this championship somehow. Or Lewis would have been just even more unbeatable than what we saw parts of the second half of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think my opinion on that is that you would have seen Lewis dominate Rosberg this year. I think Lewis dropped off at certain races at certain times this year because he didn't have Rosberg to go up against. The way that Rosberg won the championship last year, from the moment that the checkered flag dropped in Abu Dhabi last year, for all of a week or whatever it was, Hamilton's sole aim for 2017 was to defeat Rosberg. No matter what it took, he would have moved heaven and earth to beat Rosberg. That was his sole objective. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about it before. Rosberg played an absolute blinder by saying, OK, see you later, guys. You know, that would have destroyed Hamilton because he knows that, you know, this championship this year isn't on the same level because he didn't have that competition within the team no matter where Valtteri is on the pecking order of drivers you're not going to walk into a team first year and and be competitive and uh, and be able to beat Lewis on a regular basis there was times this year when he did show that but there were also times this year when Lewis sort of let him I think of Sochi for example where Lewis just didn't have a good week I don't think you'd have seen those weekends if Rosberg had been in the car um, I think that scenario and that dynamic, in a way, was lost. But also from Rosberg's perspective, Rosberg, let's be honest, Rosberg knows deep, deep down that he is not the caliber of driver that Hamilton is. He is a very, 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 very capable driver. He is a world champion. You know, you can't take that away from him. But on raw pace and raw ability, he is not on the same level as Hamilton. As much as people like or dislike Hamilton, you know, Rosberg is not on the same level. Yeah, I, I, I can't and, disagree and, with that. And Rosberg will know that. And he's known that he got into Hamilton's mind. And Rosberg played, to my mind, an absolute blinder by turning <laughs> around and saying, see you later, guys. I'm off. That would have destroyed Hamilton. You know, mentally, it would have ruined him because he didn't have that target. He didn't have that 
purpose, that raison d'etre, if you want to have a better word, you know, the, 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 the thing that would drive him every morning to get up and spend an extra hour in the gym or, or whatever, um, or take his dog on an extra long walk or whatever it may be. There was that little thing missing. And uh, I think, yeah, I, I genuinely think that if Rosberg would have been there, you would have seen a better Hamilton this year. And I think he may have even wrapped the championship up earlier because I think he would have dominated because he had that ruthless streak. I, I look at the, the situation. I don't totally disagree. I think a lot was in question because we have a new car that came in this year for, for 2017. Uh, so getting the adaptability there, uh, let's be honest, adaptability isn't necessarily Rosberg's strong suit. He's more of a technical driver, not necessarily pure talent-based, uh, not a knock on his talent, but his talent compared to somebody like Vettel and Hamilton or even Alonso, uh, we know where those levels stand. But, you know, as far as moving ahead, since uh, we're supposed to be capping this season and looking ahead on, on different things a little bit, I'll just say this, is that we now have two four-time champions in the series. I don't remember the last time we had two four-time champions going head-to-head. There never has uh, been. Yeah, yeah, there never has been. So, well, yeah, so. maybe when you had Vettel and Schumacher, did they do... No, yeah. they wouldn't have done, because Schumacher's last year was when Vettel won his fourth, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so but, but yeah. You, the, you could argue there was a period when Vettel had actually won the championship. There was maybe a couple of races in there where... Uh, I can't remember when Vettel wrapped up his fourth championship, if it was at the last race or not. But that's just splitting right. hairs, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But but looking ahead, um, this is a, a situation in my mind. We've got two four-time champions. we got two guys. And it's, it's kind of fitting that Hamilton won it because now, in my mind, everything's level. Ferrari's going to be a lot better next year. Mercedes, obviously, is going to improve. But I think we look at a situation where they're going to be about as level as we've ever seen them more so than we saw at various times this year. And I think we're going to see a scenario play out where it is, may the best man win. It's going to be level, uh, and I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be like an old-school boxing match. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. A couple of heavyweights going in there and going to battle, and I, I'm certainly a fan of those kind of battles. And I think that if Hamilton, if he needed any extra motivation with Rosberg not there, then it's pretty much who could be the first to five. And I think that's what's going to be at stake next year for sure. But um, you know, looking looking at that, that's exciting. As far as some of the other things that we saw over the weekend, I never thought I would say this a day in my life, and maybe you agree with the, with him on this, but. Lewis Hamilton saying that that uh, Abu Dhabi needs to change some things up because that yeah. race had pretty much no overtaking. That was the worst race of the season. 
in, in many, many ways. I mean, I think the one easy change <clears throat> they can make is remove that chicane before the hairpin. Yeah, I think. I mean, they got the track there. The I believe they use it when they do the endurance races. There, I don't understand why they slow the cars down more for that. Uh, you know, that hairpin there. I, personally, um, you know, I think you'd run that hairpin. Um, I know that um, Herman Tilke was uh, asked by I think it was Sky TV in the UK what um, you know about the track, and he said that there is one. They do want to change one corner in the uh, final sector which he said would be a small change with a big, big difference. Now, maybe that's the case. I don't know. Uh, I'm always, I, I, I never like a track, and I can't think of many others, that doesn't have an overtaking opportunity into turn one. Uh, you know, you've got that. It's almost like they've just stuck the start-finish line in, in the middle of the backs, you know, it, it, out the way. You know, that should, to my mind, that start-finish line should be, you know, going into the hairpin or going into the chicane at the end of the first long straight or and where the support race paddock is and the support race um, start finish line is on that sort of second long straight you have um, further around the lap. So, yeah. yeah, silly little things like that, that, again, personal opinion, I think they could probably move that. But I know they've got a huge amount of infrastructure where they are, and that's probably never going to happen. I feel like we need to run into a situation. I mean, look. When I look at tilt tracks, they all seem the same. They all race the same virtually. The only difference about his tracks that make it amazing are elevation changes. Any track that he's been a part of that has any increment of elevation changes. I look at Coda as a great example. Yes, that's his best uh, track, I think. Yeah, and I look at the race this year with these kind of cars. That yeah. race was fantastic. It was the best race that they've had since the since they debuted there. Yeah. Um, ironically, it ended with a Hamilton Vettel duel in the final laps, which is really cool. But um, yeah, you know, more of that and less of this. I mean, even Rossi had talked to me earlier in the year and said he goes, you know, Abu Dhabi is beautiful, the track's beautiful. I've got thousands of laps logged there, but it's boring to drive. He's like, but I go to Mid Ohio and yeah, it's run down. It needs some work and this and that and the other. But you have a smile on your face every lap. And oh, yeah. I think there's something like that. And to your point, maybe we need to move the start finish line in a mid Ohio kind of way away, you know, where the, where they actually start the races away from the start finish line, maybe yeah. Yeah, along yeah. The, the long straight before the hairpin. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah. Talking about you know, those tilt tracks very quickly, probably if to my <clears> mind, anyway, that the three best tracks is designed. Kota is the only one we still go to. I think that the track in Istanbul at Turkey was a great track. I love that track, um, yeah. And then also Malaysia, which is one of his first tracks. Um, that was a I good race too. It's a good track and it was a good race and I think it's got some some character to it. A, a lot of the other tracks he's involved with I think are, are, are pretty blah, want of a better word. Yeah, Azerbaijan is an interesting circuit, but pretty much he was given a, you know, that was just colour of our numbers rather than the blank canvas, wasn't it? Um, you know, there's, there's only so many. You can't knock down a 2,000 year old castle. Not now, Bernie Eccleston's gone anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was. Uh, it's a shame that uh, you know Malaysia's gone, and um, I think you know going away from the, from what we're really talking about tonight. But you know, Formula One does need to improve the standard of some of the tracks in terms of spectacle. There are certain tracks out there which don't inspire people anymore they don't you know capture people's imaginations like a spa or a suzuka or a silverstone to a certain extent you know 
I know they've been well, around for a long time. There's a lot of sort of you know history there, but you know, Barcelona, they test there. You know, personally, I don't think you should ever test on a track that you race because it becomes too much of a procession. And when was the last time you had a good race in Barcelona? Yeah, um, I agree. Hung- Hungary, it's always interesting. It's a little bit different, but again, you struggle for a good race there. Um, there's a number of tracks. You know, these cars are fast. You need <laughs> them to go fast. You need them to look like they're in. I mean, I've been lucky. I've been to Silverstone a few times, and when you stand in the Beckett's and Maggots complexes and see these cars doing what they do best, it's mind blowing. It doesn't make you know. It doesn't make sense to see them change direction at that sort of speed. <clears throat> Um, and you get a little bit of that in Kota, um, and of course you get that through uh, Rouge and 130R in Suzuka and places like that. But for Formula 1 to, you know, if we're looking into the future, I think they really need to look to get back to some of those corners and some of those like, you know, you hold, as a spectator, you hold the breath watching cars, no man is the driver. Yeah, I, I, I think to just put a cap on, on this part of the F1 deal is is we used to go to tracks, and this is a little bit before my time, obviously, but going and watching some of the historical races, you know, Brands Hatch comes to mind. Uh, obviously, we're going to go to Paul Ricard again soon. Watkins Glen, tracks that had character, tracks that required guys to actually race the track with everything they got as well as each other, um, simply to tested them to, to, to their yeah. limits. So, um, but I'm not saying that places like Abu Dhabi don't test the drivers, but it doesn't look like it's testing them. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but to I guess to, to move on from that, some of the things that happened, because I know Frank's wanting us to probably move on here, even though it's a long show tonight. Yeah, but, yeah, we can move on. I, I want to talk uh, about, speaking of Abu Dhabi, you know, all the Formula One teams uh, kind of stayed out there uh, to test some Pirelli tires, and uh, there's some stories coming out of there. I, I believe that uh, Sebastian Vettel was fastest in the Ferrari, uh, but a lot of eyes were on um, Robert Kubica, who's uh, in frame for that seat at Williams. And not Renault, Richard. <laughs> so, uh, Joey, I know you uh, you paid attention to the testing out there. Actually, you wrote a very nice article on uh, Motorsports Tribune uh, that I read earlier today. But uh, talk us through uh, some of uh, what we saw testing. Uh, we saw some uh, some uh, new drivers uh, behind the wheel there, uh, evaluating drivers, as well as evaluating some of these new tire compounds that Pirelli has. Yeah, so we had a, a two-day test. Um, mentioned earlier, Ferrari swept both of them. Yesterday was Kimi Raikkonen uh, leading the day one. Today, Vettel topped day two. Um, behind him, you had Valtteri Bottas, uh, Max Verstappen, and then Force India in fourth and fifth with, with Perez leading Ocon. But uh, honestly, what was kind of more astonishing here, to me anyway, I mean, yeah, we got Kubitz. Uh, and, and by now, I'm sorry, but I'm Kubitz it out a little bit. Like we, We've... We've heard this story. It's like Dale Jr.'s retirement tour. You know, put him in a seat, put him in a seat already, or you know, or send him off, whichever. I, I I kind of agree with what Richard said earlier in the year that we should have seen him in the final race at, at Abu Dhabi, and Massa should have just left his ass in Brazil. But well, Massa should have left his ass in Brazil a year ago, but that's that's a different story. Yeah, but <laughs> but, but, uh, but 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 back on you know before your Kuba sit out, um, uh, you know, all reports coming out of there that he's more than physically able to do the job yeah absolutely uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's i think that's erased a lot of doubt there even though there's still still a lot of naysayers out there you got these freaking guys like uh montoya and villeneuve putting their two cents in who uh, uh are really not not anywhere near what's going on there and and you know gene Todd saying hey you know we'll we'll leave it up to the to doctors and the doctors declare him fit we've got no problem so uh it, yeah there was 
There was a thing that, that Andrew Benson from BBC said, uh, something along the lines that Massa was was uh, a, a decent range back from from Vettel in qualifying. Well, Kubica is it within a tenth of what Massa ran in qualifying to to comparable to what Vettel the the gap there. So, you know, a quote unquote one handed Kubica seems to be equally as quick as. Uh, Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Uh, as a retired Felipe Massa, so I, twice you know, retired Felipe Massa. Yes, twice, twice retired. Um, I'll say this though. Also, the is guy that, that was is that, like a, is that like a twice baked potato, uh, <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> or a re, refried no, beans? I don't good. know. <laughs> a bit, a bit probably not good either way. But uh, Sergey Sorokin um, was also in the Williams seat today. Put in eighty six laps before he handed it off to Kubica. Kubica nailed his final lap, which was the best for seventh overall towards the latter part of the day with Hypersofts on the car. Um, beyond that, to, to cap off this test, Charles Leclerc made the most laps at 148 on the day uh, with Sauber. Uh, more on their little fun deal in a second, but uh, on the Kubica situation, I think that he's fit for this seat. I think that he's somebody that if they're going to give a look to him, they need to hurry up and do it. Uh, because I th- honestly, it's one of those situations that there's some other notables out there that you could put in that seat. But in terms of what they need, somebody over the age of 25 to to fit the bill for Martini, um, you know, somebody with experience. So, and honestly, another thing, somebody that gives them good press. They haven't had that in a minute. I know that. Oh, we saw Felipe Massa retire, and Valtteri Bottas has gone on. You know, the the big notable that they've attained in the last year and a half is Patty Lowe. That's it. I, I, I say what you will. I know that, um, you know, Lance, uh, Lance Stroll has been good for him and, and whatnot this year. Um, been really good. And in, in some respects, but I think that when you really look at that organization and what's trying to be put forth, their best hire was bringing Patty Lowe over. And now it's a matter of just blending him with some, a, a veteran driver that understands how to get on with the program. And I think that Kubitz is somebody that gets that, he was good with BMW. He wouldn't be my first choice, but he's a good choice nonetheless. Um, you know, beyond that, I, I just think they need to hurry up and, and make a selection. Um, they've done all the testing. He, he's logged over a century mark in testing laps now over the two days. So you you know what you know, and you know what you know from the Renault test as well. It's it, pull the trigger or move on. That's my take. I mean, on. I think it it goes back to the point Josh, you were making on you know the circuits that Formula One goes through and the layouts there. Formula One needs that sort of spark, you know, that, that that's something a little bit different, that sort of feel good story. And I think um, that would be a you know that would get far more, to put it bluntly, newspaper you know column inches uh, him going back than it would be a Kvyat signing or a. Shrokin or uh, Deresta signing, it, it it captures people's imagination far more, and I think that's what Formula One needs. So even if yeah. more from a political standpoint than a performance standpoint, it's a good move for the sport. Yeah, I mean to put it in retrospect for you, Frank, there was a lot of people talking about Susie Wolf 
retiring from driving to go be wife to Toto more so. And she'd never touched a Formula One car, really, uh, to comparison to a lot of these guys. Um, and that made more buzz in some respects than than some of what's gone on in Formula One this year. So th- they definitely need a spark to Richard's point. I, we can only hear Lewis Hamilton dominates by 30 seconds so many times this year. But, um, you know, moving on to the Salver thing that we talked about earlier, uh, Alfa Romeo is going to come back to Formula One after 20-plus years away from the sport. Ferrari engines are going to be on that car. We've known that for a while. Well, Ferrari's sister company or whatever you want to call it um, that they that they oversee in Alfa Romeo, they've decided that that's going to be badged on the side of a Sauber. I think it's awesome. I think it's, if nothing else, it's different brand recognition to at least give the aesthetics that there's a lot of different manufacturers that play the common fan that doesn't know the different variety of the company um, that goes on the side of these cars wouldn't pick up necessarily on that. I just think that this is a good move in, in many respects. It's different brand recognition for, for Ferrari. And let's be honest, if you run the way that Sauber typically runs, you really don't want it to say Ferrari on the side of that car. But <laughs> No, you don't. But, uh, but Alfa Romeo is one of the oldest marks in racing. You know, they, they, they won the first two championships in Formula yep, One. Yep, they've been around forever. Mm-hmm. Now, Alfa Romeo is now, they are a subsidiary of uh, Fiat Chrysler. Uh, and Fiat Chrysler once had Ferrari under their umbrella, although they've sold most of the shares of Ferrari back to Ferrari and privatized them, although they do still hold a small stake in there. Uh, they're, they're still connected. But, uh, uh, you know, Fiat Chrysler, Alfa Romeo. This is the closest you have to a, an American engine manufacturer in Formula One. So, That's pretty uh, pretty tenuous link. There, tenuous link. Tenuous link. Absolutely. But Alfa Romeo has um, put on a pretty bold advertising campaign in the states to try to rebuild that brand name. They've introduced a couple of new cars. Uh, they're importing a few new cars into the states, and they've got a lot of advertising. A lot of the advertising that you can uh, that you'll see uh, during race broadcasts of uh, both of you know Formula One race or IndyCar. So it's uh, it's a good marketing step for them because they're trying to rebuild that brand recognition in the states as a as a luxury brand uh, type of car. Um, and it kind of falls in with, uh, you know, the American ownership of Formula One with Liberty Media. They're trying to crack the American market there. So, I mean, it's a good move. Uh, you know, some people think it's silly. Some people think it's ridiculous. But, uh, Joey, to your point, yeah, if you're going to put uh, put your engine in a Sauber, yeah, maybe let's not uh, admit it's a Ferrari. Well, I'll say this is maybe you're hoping uh, you can return those glory days with the Alpha and maybe Charles Leclerc is your new Tazio Nuvolari. To, to drop an old school name in there, but I, I think that you know when you get a chance to see Sauber and, and the direction that they're trying to go, I mean, and a year old Ferrari engine with Pascal Airline and Marcus Ericsson was still better in some respects than some of some of the other cars that we saw on the grid this year. I mean, they still got points. Uh, so you know, say we joke a little bit about that uh, over the course of the year, but really looking back. They did a good job, and I'm really curious to see what they do moving forward because I'm wondering if we're going to see. They haven't officially announced Charles Leclerc as one of the drivers. I think that's coming. I think Antonio Giovinazzi, another Ferrari reserve driver, uh, is going to be in the mix, which, by the way, I don't know if anybody here saw it on the panel, but uh, you listening at home, if you get a chance to look up F2 highlights from the last race in Abu Dhabi, 
the final lap was amazing. Uh, it was, it, a, you it know, was, it was. Yeah, I watched I mean, it. It came down to the final laps, and it, you know, three guys in contention for the win, dueling it out. Um, it, it, I mean, that's that's good stuff. It, it was good to see a season which, let, let's be honest, that, the championship's been done for a while. It's nice to see kids like that still fighting, fighting it out because they know that their career's still not finished. That's only one more step to get try to get up to F one. So that was good to see. Um, and then. I guess to cap off the F1 conversation, what better way to cap it off than the fact that over the weekend we saw them announce and reveal a new logo, which looks like something from a 1980s arcade. Now, um, as I look at that logo, and you've got to imagine it a little bit, right? You've just got to, got to sit back and let it sink in, right? If you look at the, the one there, it's kind of leaned back, and then, then the, the F, it kind of turns up. looks like a pair of legs. It looks like... Fernando, it looks like Fernando Alonso relaxing on a lounge chair. I, honest to God, I, it does. Honest to God, it does. Let's be honest. The big reason this happened is because they were searching. Liberty Media was searching for their own brand identity. Uh, that's a lot of what this was. This wasn't. There was nothing wrong with the old logo. If you ask me, the old logo looked more of what you would expect an F1 logo to look. You know, sharp, crisp, a little bit kind of futuristic in some respects kind of kind of cool and sleek this thing like i like i said it looks like something from a 1980s arcade you know i feel like we're about to play tech mobile or you know something along those lines tron yeah i I just i don't like it maybe it maybe it'll rub off on me after five years but the the long and the long and short of it you know the 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 branding the logo has really little bearing on uh what's happening on the track, and people are way <laughs> Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Putting are, are, are way too upset about it's a logo. It's a logo. So what? You know what I mean. So, but uh, Josh, but, uh, Josh, I know you've been quiet. Oh, go ahead, Richard. Very quickly. Sorry. Um, as much respect um, as I have for this uh, particular person, I'm going to mention in a minute. He's obviously fallen into the the uh, corporate world because uh, Ross Braun has turned around and said that the old F1 logo wasn't iconic or memorable. Oh, yeah. Sure, Ross. You're yeah, not, sure. Uh, yeah. You, you, you've yeah, I guess uh, he's not iconic or memorable either, then, huh? No. R- Ross, uh, come on. Ross Bentley. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of being not memorable. <laughs> so, anyway, so Josh, you've been quiet over there. Um, I, I want to kind of bring you into the conversation because uh, you and I were talking earlier today. There's a story broke that Formula One has been looking for a second um, U.S. Grand Prix. And, you know, they've talked about Vegas. 
you know, the discussions about New York, New Jersey fizzled out a couple of years ago. Um, I, Richard and I had talked a while back, you know, going back to Indy would be the turnkey solution. But uh, the, the thing that popped up uh, today, Scout, in the street race was Miami. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually. I mean, I'm surprised, but but not not surprised that that they they take they take a look at at Miami. I mean, I think you know Miami would would certainly you know it it has some some positives to it. Of you know Miami, you know for one thing, Miami's a very diverse city. So and it's it, it's also a major central hub to get people get people in and out of there from virtually anywhere. I mean, it's right down right down on the coast of Florida. You can get people from from South America, Europe, and what and and what have you but it's just the only thing that i that i caution about adding a street race and i don't want to sound like a debbie downer but if you look through the history of of racing of when we've had street races any city that's already a destination like i mean i know we've talked about vegas has come come in and out the last couple of years you know but any of the f1 champ car races in 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 cities that have that are already destinations they just don't last. Um, I mean, I mean, Long Beach being the lone exception, just because Long Beach came at a time when racing was in its real glory years, when you had, you know, the Nicky Lauda and James Hunt rivalry, and you know, guys like Mario Andretti were household names, and then, you know, it helped revitalize the city, and it, it's become deep and rooted in SoCal culture as well as racing. So well, yeah, it's just I mean, those guys started those races. And the the other one that's lasted a long time is Toronto. Well, yeah, but that that's yeah. I mean, right, this day and age, the legal red tape and the hoops you need to jump through to get a street race approved and the local opposition is ridiculous. I mean, you know, see you know Grand Prix of Baltimore or Grand Prix of Boston for reference, and and yeah. or, or or downtown Houston. You know, it's I think if Formula One wants to uh, come to the states. In, in a second track other than Austin, it's got to be at a permanent facility. You know, obviously, Indiana, yeah. Indianapolis is the turnkey situation. Um, there's a couple of other great tracks um, in the states here, you know, notably Road America, Watkins Glen, but they would all need um, a serious, serious influx of cash uh, to get up to what they call FIA standard. Um, and I think probably of those, Watkins Glen is probably the closest uh, to to getting to what um, the FIA would need there, and they've actually, you know, Michael Printup has had a few talks with uh, some folks in Formula One. Don't know that that'll happen. I uh, don't know that that's on Liberty Media's radar, but uh, it, it makes more sense than doing a street race. To your point, maybe, Josh, uh, I absolutely agree with maybe you. Maybe they could use the uh, maybe they could use the road course at Charlotte. Oh, okay. yeah. well, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about that. Yeah, like, we're gonna yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. that later tonight. Yeah. I mean, so. I'll say this to to Josh's point though. Like, uh, there there's some validity to that because when you look at tourist destinations, we don't see them thrive. Long Beach isn't really something that you've ever known as a tourist destination. People go there for the race, so it's like you need to have a situation where if you're gonna go somewhere, you have to be you know if you build it, they will come kind of scenario. I think you know. Obviously, Watkins Glen comes to mind. The facility's been upgraded a lot with the with the NASCAR situation and ISC. Um, you know, a lot of revamps to that facility. I think IMS makes a lot of sense. My big thing is, you already go to the Gulf 
around the Gulf of Mexico with going down to Austin. You're already in that area. You don't need to go 800 miles across the Gulf uh, to be in Miami, uh, you know, and then you end up in in Mexico City, uh, which is another 900 miles south of Austin. I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to do that. I think attacking a place like IMS, Watkins Glen, or somewhere in the northwest um, makes a lot more sense, even if it's a second race in Canada. But realistically, it's a world championship. We have one race in just about every country you could hope to have one right now. I'd say that there's some countries that don't have one that deserve one long before we get a second one here. I know the American market's important, but it's not crucial to the success of F1. And I think we, you know, as far as Liberty Media and other things, you can't get so wrapped up into one market and trying so hard to make it thrive that you you have the other one start to go downhill. I think that and we also need to put a cap on how many races we're willing to put in this championship. I think it has to be 22 max because this isn't NASCAR where we can go 36 races and we're all traveling within the United States. These teams, uh, Richard, you were in Formula One um, for, for a period of time. I mean, it's a grueling work. And the fact that you just, even if it's a two-week gap between races, that's still a relatively quick turnaround for everything you'll have to do. Yeah, I mean, most people, you know, so you know nascar are sort of limiting their sort of weekend lengths i mean a lot of times now the teams are especially if you've got like an east coast race you know the teams will be leaving in some instances friday morning and coming back sort of late sunday afternoon formula one world most engineers will leave on like a wednesday and you know get back from a flyaway race late on monday so it's a probably if you look at the actual time away from home uh, between F1 and, and NASCAR, it's probably there's not a huge amount of difference between uh, between the two series, but um, th- th- there's a balance there, isn't there? You, yeah. You've got to have uh, you know the races obviously sell, but then, and I think it's where NASCAR struggles a little bit is that they maybe it dilutes itself a little bit, and you I know you get to a point in the season, or I feel you get to a point in the season in NASCAR where you know that's sort of like. Between May and August, you like you haven't got a clue where you are that weekend. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who's racing. You don't. It just becomes this sort of monotonous drag, and I think they need to work very hard to avoid that. Yeah, I you think know? that you you get a chance to to see the schedule firsthand, and I think it's one of those scenarios where if you really start to dig at it, a um, you know. They've still got to figure out things. It's nice to want things, I guess is the best way to put this, before I get ahead of myself. And it's it's nice that we, we hear them looking and then prospecting other places. Odds are it's just a tease. Um, but I think that when you get a chance to look at this, they really need to figure out Silverstone and the situation with the BRDC. They've really got to figure out the future of, of Monza uh, because that's certainly been – that's not going to go away anytime soon. You know, if Amola is going to happen, it needs to happen. Um, I don't have a problem with either venue. I love Monza. I think it's beautiful. And I'm okay with Italy having two races in some respects, just because of what it's meant to the history of the sport. But I think those things need to be figured out way before we start to test more of the waters in America. If anything else, let's see what this ESPN thing does to spark the American interest. Could they hit on something that NBC Sports Network couldn't? Because for my, for my money, it's an end of an era for NBCSN, and that's sad because you look at what they were able to accomplish 
and and the growth of the sport in this country and it was really really solid in my book i think they they had some numbers and i don't have them off the top of my head but i know that the numbers were dramatically good um but to look at some other venues to throw one out there if we're going to go beyond america i'll say something that richard was alluding to earlier and that's istanbul um, that track facility was good it was in a great location um and there was a lot of popularity with that venue that put on good show so there's, yeah. uh, there's a problem with that. It's now a used car lot. Is it really? Pretty much. They have big. Uh, I think more from a like a, a corporate level. You know, people go there to buy thousands of vehicles or hundreds of vehicles. You know, for corporate fleets rather than private individuals. Yeah, but my understanding is that it's uh, it's a big corporate parking lot right now. Yeah. Well, but, last um, I saw World Superbikes race there not too long ago. Well, I guess it'd be now two years ago. So that's just yeah. it's, that's stunning. It, it may have been. I mean, it, that may have been a temporary thing. I don't know, but I did hear that, that was going on there in the last few years. But uh, they they certainly do need to sort of get you know get get everything get their own house in order first before they start looking at other places. And I think what you're about, right. What with, about Germany? Well, yeah, exactly. You know, you've got. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the new Nurburgring. I think they just raced there because of the name. I think Hockenheim. I think to a certain extent they did destroy Hockenheim when they they got rid of the the, the forest section. But I understand why they did. And the new Hockenheim is still a, a very very competitive track. So yep. you know when you have a four times champion competing in there, I think you need to go there. I mean, if you look at you know Germany's won nine of the last seven. Uh, no, sorry, ten of the last seventeen World Championships. If you look at the five that Schumacher won, the four that Vettel right. won, and the one that um, Rosberg won. So, you know, th- and for them to not have a race, it's crazy. And not Silver's to mention, what, and not what to mention it, Mercedes-Benz. That's well, yeah, their for sure, yeah. Well, and, yeah. And what does it say about the sport, though? I know we can't stay on this subject forever, but what does it say about the sport when... Oh, we can. Got, oh, we can. You, you, we could. Frank would hate us, but we don't really care, Frank. Hey, I, already Eli, I, already, I, already hate, I already hate you guys, so... But, <laughs> oh, man. But... But what does it say about the sport when you see Lewis Hamilton, who's been a whether we like it or not, a, a champion who's transcended a lot of the sport in in many different ways, a four-time champ, British, and we're seeing issues with trying to keep racing F1 racing in in the UK. And then you look at it a step further. We don't have a race in Germany, and you've got another four-time champion, Sebastian Vettel, as well as the automaker Mercedes, who Lewis Hamilton drives for, and we can't put a race in, in Germany and then you look at Italy having issues and that's where the home of Ferrari. It's like, what is going on here? It's like that, the, you know, Formula One has reached out to these oil rich co- countries, you know, um, and cause that, that's that, the only cause, people cause, they can cause afford this. Yeah. And they can afford the sanction fee, you know, I mean, so well, that sanctioning that? fee is moving a little bit because Bernie's yeah. no longer there. But, Right, absolutely, yeah, but that's turning your back on the history of F1, because Formula One is, uh, you know, traditionally European, now we're we're in the Far East and the Middle East, you know. But I think you have to be to be considered a world championship, well, ab- European absolutely, championship. But, but, but you can't, you can't pull all the races, you can't pull all British the races F1. out of Europe. You know, you know, the thing about it is, you got, you, you who's going to invest in building a racetrack in the, in these, in these times, now you've got a gleaming facility in the center of the country, in the heartland, in, in, in Indianapolis Motor Speedway, that is already, you know, F, up to FIA standards. Uh, you just need someone to come in and probably promote that race properly. And I think we, you know, you, you've got a great facility to have it. 
uh, center of the country, and then you've got another place in Texas state. You know, in Texas. I don't I, honestly, other than on uh, oil rich country, I don't see another really new track being being built in the in, in the near future. I mean, well, the just problem the, the investment. The problem you have is that a lot of these new countries and these new tracks are being built by governments. So it's in the government interest of places like Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and Azerbaijan to attract and, and, and people so to the country. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, you look at Silverstone, that's run, as we mentioned earlier, by the BRDC. It's basically a gentleman's club. So you have a, 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 and some people call it a dysfunctional gentleman's club. And a British dysfunctional gentleman's club is the worst thing out there, sorry. Um, but I mean, you, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when they're competing, you know, when you have, um, you know, the head of liberty going to meet with the, you know, Vladimir Putin or, uh, you know, whoever it may be, and then you've got him going to meet Ralph Biggins, Billingsworth at the BRDC. I'm sorry, he's not who runs the BRDC. I'm trying to think of a, a more British name. But, you know, there's a different level of, of who you're dealing with. And that's one of the problems that Silverstone has had. And a lot of these other tracks in Europe have had is they're not owned by these oil-rich governments, and they're not doing it to attract sponsorship or tourism or to promote the country. They're just doing it because that's what they do. Yeah, and, and the sad part is is that without Formula One, in some respects I say this, without Formula One, Silverstone never would have been able to afford the upgrades or to put in the upgrades. I, I know that BRDC did that because we could attract formula one by doing that. And they, it was kind of a, if you do it, we'll do this. And it was, you know, kind of a trust handshake kind of a situation, but you know, and, and both didn't get what they wanted out of this deal. But I think you have to appreciate what you got, or you just got to move on. You know, Hey, let's, let's go somewhere else. If we, if Silverstone doesn't want us, Silverstone isn't the only place we've ever seen F1 run in the UK. Uh, Britain's no, has I mean- a damn good circuit. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how Liberty approaches because I remember when Bernie was there. I mean, I had family that grew up around Silverstone. I know the area reasonably well. Going back sort of 20-odd years, you had like a farm road in and out of Silverstone, which is basically what it was. And back in the I guess, late mid, mid to late 90s, Bernie was getting all, you know, unhappy with the situation. And Bernie said, well, I'm going to make the... Uh, I'm going to make the government build new roads around Silverstone so everybody can get in and out easier. And the government turned around and said, are we? Oh, okay. Glad you've, glad you've told us what we're doing. Uh, we're not doing that. So that was yeah. all privately funded by Silverstone Complex. So, you know, part government, part, part private funding. But um, it'd be interesting to see how Liberty approached this because they've got to innovate and develop the sport, but also they can't lose their fan base. And we, we've touched on this a little bit with NASCAR. The NASCAR fan base is shifting. You know, it's, it's getting older and you need to attract new, younger people in. I don't think that's so much the case with Formula One. It's just disappearing because people are, you know, not being exposed to it as much. And, and you know, how Liberty go about this. I and mean, at the end of the day, we have multiple, no matter which country you're in, you have multiple 24-hour sports channels on TV now. You have to make your sport stand out and make people want to go and watch it. Now, I think, to a certain extent, Formula 1 actually has an advantage in the U.S. over a lot of other sports, especially over NASCAR, because of its time slot. A lot of those European races are on at, like, 8, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, which is perfect, because it's not clashing with anything else. Right. You, know, th- you don't have to worry about got football a, or exactly. anything else. 
Exactly. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, I want to watch the uh, Grand Prix and I want to watch an NFL game and I want to watch baseball. Oh, well, they're all on at different times. Awesome. So they do have that. If they're looking for this, the U.S. market, they have a prime slot there that they can work with to try and encourage that. And I think, you know, the, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why you see uh, a lot of these like Singapore and Abu Dhabi, these night races out in the Far East. So it brings it into a more watchable TV slot in the U.S., I think when when you get a chance to look at this uh, this whole schedule, every track usually brings something unique, whether it be the environment or whether it be the racing product. And you know, we see it from Monaco to Spa to Suzuka. Um, I, I think really when you get a chance to look at, at a place like Silverstone, in my opinion, I know people might disagree with me on this, but uh, Silverstone racing is not that good. It's it's not. I, I think I think we we come across a situation where it's like, okay, well, what do you, what can you do that's unique to help the sport? And if you can't do anything, then then we need to go somewhere else. And that's you know we see something unique with with Coda, we see something unique with Montreal and Brazil and so on and so forth. And sure, it's a part of the history, but you know what? There's a lot of other tracks like Zandvoort that used to be part of the history of the sport too that we no longer go to. So, but you know, to, to gain- Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner go back to one of the points to slightly disagree with you that it's about challenging the drivers and people wanting to see the drivers on the edge and the cars on the edge you look at um you know corners like um you know the beckett's maggot section the new turn one and turn two section if you you watch the cars through there that is what those cars are built to do that is what they're doing on the limit i I don't disagree but it's a better MotoGP track. It puts on better MotoGP races than it does Formula One races, though. A lot of tracks do that. <laughs> well, yeah, but but I'm saying like, I get that it's every track supposed to be unique and every track is supposed to challenge driver in some way. And I'll even throw Abu Dhabi in this gauntlet of boring races since we just talked about it. But I think that it has to. There has to be something unique that it's able to bring to to the sport. And right now, I don't really see BRDC, Silverstone, etc. I don't see that happening. So and what I does think, okay? So a, so playing devil's advocate, what does a Suzuka bring that a Silverstone doesn't bring? I think when you look at the fact that a it's secluded a little bit more so than a Silverstone, it's in a totally different market. You look at what we've seen with the racing. You look at 130R. There, there's iconic parts of that track, and also just you see the engagements that you get from the teams and the fans. 
the different things going on. I mean, NBCSN was playing, you know, culture things going on between drivers and fans. It's a different market than what they're exposed to anywhere else. And I think that that's important. There's one reason, especially now that we're no longer going to Malaysia, that that makes sense. When you look mm -hmm. at a place like Silverstone, I understand that it's still a decently far away uh, situation from some of the other tracks down south in, in Spain and, and now that we no longer go to Germany, but, you know, call, uh, call Belgium with Spa. You know, obviously those things do something unique. Now we've got Austria. Austria brings something slightly unique. Uh, the the racing product at those places, in my opinion, is a lot better than what we see at, at uh, Silverstone the last few years. Now, if we can fix that, I'm in favor. But I think the other end of that is you have to be willing to have a fan base that can commit themselves to it. That's one reason we don't go to Germany right now. The last race we had in Germany credit grandstands looked hideous it looked like an xfinity race at charlotte it was terrible so i, I think that um you know and people are learning where to spend their money a little bit more smartly and i think the other end of that is also you know what is silverstone doing for the fans to help let me let me ask, ask you this question that i throw this question at both of you you ever think we'll see uh formula one back in south africa um well, ten hey, years, hey, ten years from now, maybe not any time in the next five. Yeah, I mean, there there have been some talks about you know putting Kalami back on there, but that circuit needs a lot of work. Um, well, they, they they they've done serve, a lot of uh, they've done uh, a lot of work recently. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they would better serve an IndyCar yep. venue than they would right now an F1 race. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had spoken to Bobby Rahal earlier earlier in the year, and I guess the the track is owned by Porsche South Africa, and it's been brought up to it's been brought up to modern standards, but the the problem, but the, the problem is, is that the, is that the track was built. I mean, it was built in the fifties, and apparently, looking at Google Earth photos of it, it's right in the middle of a neighborhood. So, I mean, logistically, you know, getting people in and out of there would be would be difficult. But, but, but there's ways to work around that, though. I mean, yeah, I think you've got to look at this if you're Liberty Media, and you've got to kind of present it like a FIFA situation. I think you've got to look at it, and we see FIFA go to. You know, whenever they're going to a, to a place like Russia, they've got four or five or six stadiums, and they're having matches at each one of those those stadiums at different times, and they're finding ways to to plan the logistics, to plan ways for for interaction, fan attendance, the draw, and how to build up different spectacles for each one of those. And I think for F1, it's kind of a similar pattern. I don't really see where that market fits with South Africa right now. I, I think that that. Honestly, I don't I don't know what you gain from that because there's not much there, and there's not much there that you could do from a manufacturer standpoint either. Um, I know you know he, he Josh said Porsche's uh, part of the track, unless Porsche's Porsche becomes a part of FF1 in 2021 uh, with the engine regulations changing. I don't really see that situation playing out. Yeah, just to yeah. just to sort of. Um sort of go back to the points about what I'm going to defend it because because it was my home race. No, that's what, fine. So, what Silverstone brings to uh to Formula 1. So I've got the, some numbers here from 2015. So a couple of years out of date here. But for the race weekend, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 350,000 people attended Silverstone. Now if you take somewhere like Bahrain, they had 90,000 people. Uh Kota had 224,000. Don't look uh, up Azerbaijan, uh, Azerbaijan because that's like nine thousand, and they were. Paid. Yeah, I mean that wasn't. Uh, but the second highest is Australia at two hundred ninety-six thousand. Um, 
Canada's up at 244, Singapore 260. Uh, but, I mean, I know there's the Lewis Hamilton effect, but I can't remember the last time that Silverstone wasn't sold out. They, you, know, you look at a lot of tracks around the world, for example, you know, Charlotte, they're, they're taking grandstands away. You know, Silverstone, they can't build them fast enough. So, so uh, let me yeah, let me throw and, this and at you. You guys don't don't forget the first uh, Formula One race they had at Indianapolis drew two hundred thousand people and was the best attended race of that year. And they, they you well, know, continually I, had more than a hundred thousand there uh, until the Michelin tire debacle nonsense. So, so I guess I don't know those are a couple years old. I feel like the last year, this past year's numbers weren't nearly as strong as that. But I'll say this is. I'd be surprised. I think then, I think they'd be pretty good. But why, in the absolute hell, is the BRDC so stubborn? Because then they run into a, a situation where they're depriving fans. And and let's be honest. I mean, these things don't end without a lawsuit coming one way or the other. So I, I don't understand. I don't understand BRDC side of it in a, in a lot of ways. It's because they've got no money. It's basically what it is. There, so, as you mentioned earlier. They're a gentleman's club, and yeah. um, you know that—that's that, all. That, that's all they are. They—they they don't have the money. They so, don't have the uh, the government backing, and um, they. You know, unfortunately, that's the situation they're in. It's a very. Um, they're they're fighting. I mean, I remember. Goodness me, it's a lot better than it used to be. But when I first got into motorsport and football, what you would go around Silverstone, and the marketing and PR people would have toilet roll on them. So if their VIP wanted to use one of the bathrooms at Silverstone, they gave them toilet roll because there was no guarantee there was toilet roll in there. They had to stand outside the door because the chances are the door wouldn't lock. You but know? is that the Silverstone effect, or is that just how much British people love racing? And so you could put that spectacle on at another track in Britain. Oh, yeah. Now, have... You could argue that, I mean, again, I don't know the numbers off my head, but the... Um, the the uh, Rally of Great Britain in Wales has equally high numbers, maybe even not higher. The British Touring Car Series gets very high numbers because it's cheap and affordable and e- easy to access. But um, it, you know, if you want to look at a, uh, would you get the same? You know, you've got to look at the location of Silverstone. It's very much in the middle of the country. It's easy for people to get to London. It's an hour and just over an hour north of London from the Manchester-Liverpool-Leeds uh, area, which is probably the second largest population density. Again, probably two hours south of that. Very, very easy commute and very easy to get in and out of. Brands you'd pretty much remove the whole north of England because you couldn't get there and back in a day from anything much north of London, really. Donington Park, yet yeah, you can easily get in and out of Donington, but I think they've, they've had their opportunity and they've blown that. So I think it's stuck where it is. And I think they, um, I think they need to. The, the BRDC need to sort themselves out, basically, and uh, and back Silverstone and support it. And hopefully, Liberty will see that as well. And they'll see, you know, you need, you know, you need to get into new emerging markets for sure. But you also need to look after your core fan base and the likes of your Monzas, your Spas, your Silverstones. Um, you know, you, you're the going back to France, how that will get on in at Paul Ricard, we're not sure. You need to go back to Germany. You need these core tracks because that is the core heartland of the championship and it gives the championship some identity. Going to these soulless Tilka tracks in some oil-rich country somewhere <laughs> in the world doesn't engage people. It doesn't get them excited. Um, it's just a, 
oh yeah, where is this? You know. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the Bernie Ecclestone effect, though, isn't it? Like he would just go for whoever had the highest bid. That's why Azerbaijan got uh, yeah. a race. They paid and, reportedly. Reportedly, they paid three times the standard sanctioning fee. And in all fairness, it's worked reasonably well. You know, it's uh, a good uh, track. I mean, last last year was a good race, and you, know, I, you can. Yeah. I and mean, actually, the the F two races have probably been more interesting than Formula One races. But I think there's potential there. It's quite again, it's a spectacle. It's a wow factor. You know, seeing these cars drive around a 2,000-year-old castle or whatever it may be is, um, you know, pretty much, yeah, wow. This is, this captures people's imagination. And, Frank's, and that's, Frank, well, Frank's, Frank's cutting us off. Yeah, <laughs> I'm cutting you off. I was trying to wait, wait for a good, because the end of sense, I would say, wow, great and passionate discussion there, but let's move on. Um, and, you don't like F1, Frank? I, I love F1. But, oh, let's um, talk about going round and round in circles in NASCAR. Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. That season's over. We can't. Sorry, Frank. No more NASCAR talk. It's over. <laughs> so poor, uh, old, poor old Seth is here for a reason. He wants to talk some NASCAR. But anyway, this is, it kind of is a nice segue into uh, the next little. I, I want to. That's know, more of an interruption what? than a segue, wasn't it? Yeah, that was my bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Finish your thought. Let's antagonize Frank some more. Finish your thought. <laughs> One year ago, we all made some predictions about uh, 2017, okay? And Steve, who used oh. to be our Formula One correspondent, made the prediction that Bernie Ecclestone would be pushed out of Formula One and Formula One would see a different direction going forward. And we've just had a great discussion about that. But I want to get into... Uh, Gray uh, had a prediction for last year, and we're going to go ahead and have a listen to it. Uh, let's take a listen to what uh, Gray had to say last year. have three first-time winners in the Sprint Cup division next year. I think we're going to see Chase Elliott, Ryan Blaney, and Austin Dillon uh, garner their first wins in the Cup Series next year. Gray, you got, uh, you got two out of the three. You predicted three new winners in the uh, – Cup Series. Um, yep, we did have three new winners. Uh, you got two of them right, but the one you missed was uh, young Chase Elliott, but gosh, he came close, huh? He sure did. He came close several times and, uh, uh, you know, several times late late in, late in the season. But, yeah, you know, he's knocking on the door, and if he keeps doing it, he will uh, he'll eventually do it. I guess the one, uh, you know, that we didn't figure was Ricky Stenhouse, and, and Stenhouse got two uh, – two plate track uh, wins. And, of course, I tell you, that was one of the more, I guess one of the more pleasant surprises of the year was uh, was the Roush uh, uh, cars and how they ran uh, on the speedways. Um, so that was somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat of a nice surprise, I guess. And, of course, we figured, uh, you know, Ryan Blaney was a was sort of a can't miss uh, along the way. Um you know, he, he ran so well in the Wood Brothers car, and he and he continued to run well uh, this year, and he did get his win at, uh, at uh, Pocono. Yeah, and then the other one, Austin Dillon, I mean, that was yep. probably the long shot of, uh, of of the ones you predicted, and sure enough, he pulled off a win of the Coke 600, you know, one of the, sure. the high-profile races of the year. Yeah, he did, and, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a, a, you know, nice shot in the arm for uh, – RCR and it kind of backed up, uh, you know, Ryan Newman's win at uh, at Phoenix uh, a little earlier. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, good job with your prediction there. Now, Christopher DeHarty has just joined us. Chris, how are you, buddy? Doing well. I hope the sound isn't too muffled. I'm calling from uh, the rear portion of a high school gymnasium right oh. now. Okay. <laughs> what are you? I figured oh. I wasn't going to make it home in time, so I figured I might as well join the call right now uh, while I'm trying to figure this out. The uh, girls' high school basketball game I was just co- covering just ended about a few minutes ago, and I was just uh, checking to make sure my box score was right. <laughs> okay. Let, let, let's take a quick listen to Chris's bowl prediction from last year, and here it is. I think that Toyota's going to come back from the disappointment of 2016. I think they're going to win Lamar outright in 2017. They finished second four different times at Lamar. Twice in the last few five or three or four years, they've actually had leads evaporate from them because of technical malfunctions. I think they're going to put it all together, and in 2017, they're going to win the 24 hours of Lamar, especially since Audi is no longer competing at Lamar. Chris, uh, you predicted that uh, Toyota would win Le Mans outright. How'd that work out? Uh, not too well. Oh, unfortunately, LMP, it almost didn't work out for anybody in LMP1 this past year, but uh, it was it was definitely an odd running um, in more ways than one. Um, I mean, heck, a Jackie Chan's team almost won, so it wasn't... Uh, <laughs> It, it was it was it was one that will be remembered for years to come. But yeah, I mean uh, Porsche Porsche won. Uh, Toyota finished with eighth. Um, but uh, you know, as many times as Toyota's been at Le Mans, as many times they've had good cars there, they just haven't been able to pull off that win at Le Mans. Heck, even Mazda's won Le Mans. Mazda really refined their car over the course of a few years. Toyota uh, really kind of messed themselves up by not running a third car, and it really showed. All right, now we're going to go ahead and uh, the last little tape of a prediction I have is uh, it's mine. We'll, we'll go ahead and have a listen to it. This is what I had to say last year. Takuma Sato wins the Indy 500 in the Andretti car. And there you go. That was a pretty good one. You know, Takuma Sato wins the Indy 500. Uh, he did that. Um, now, in, in retrospect, uh, then he made in – what my mind was uh, one of the the biggest uh, knee jerk decisions to uh, sign with uh, Ray Hall for the next year, when Andretti was speculating, where there was speculation that Andretti was going to go to Chevrolet, and um, and that turns out Andretti stayed with Honda. So uh, Joey, now you're pretty pretty involved in IndyCar, and uh, Josh, you could chime in as well. I mean. Uh, Sada was welcome to stay at Andretti. Do you think he, him, and his agents just jumped the gun there, um, or, or, or was he being pushed out the door? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of moving parts to, to that question. I, I think first and foremost, I'm happy Takuma Sada won. He was the driver journalist for us at Motorsports Tribune, so that made for a really cool retrospective article. Absolutely. Um, gonna plug that one in there right quick. Um, but. <laughs> doot, doot. I, I, but I think that uh, when you get a chance to, to see this, uh, Andretti, you understand why they were contemplating it uh, with the Universal Aero Kit and everything coming out. They did make their decision a little later than anyone would have liked, really. And I think that Takuma just couldn't wait. So he goes back to where it all began at RLL. And I think that uh, you know he it's unique because we get to see Graham have a teammate finally uh, for a whole season, not just tag for three races during the year. And I think that... Uh, that 
element played a, played a factor. It also hurt Andretti, though, beyond losing somebody like Takuma. Um, you know, talking to Michael Andretti a couple weeks ago, one of the things that he said was like, you know, we haven't been a part of these te- the, these manufacturer tests for Honda. Uh, they've got Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports and, and Chip Ganassi Racing involved. And that's a lot to do with the fact that they were so late in making their their answer for declaring for next year to stay with Honda. So, you know, it hurt them in that respect. They haven't been able to touch the cars. They haven't had a driver able to touch the car. And I, I so, yeah, it, it's a kind of a double negative from that respect. You know, you lose Takuma, defending Indy 500 champion. You lose your opportunity to get your hands in the car early. Even though they have an engineer present, let's be honest, you're going to, there's nothing like, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Having the feedback directly from the driver and it being your driver involved, so you can kind of relay that to what you need to set up things for your organization moving ahead. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit of a jump in the gun, but I don't think that Takuma is going to be hurting at all. I think Honda, if you really look at, we expect improvement from both, both sides, from engine manufacturer, Chevy and Honda. But I think when you really look ahead, if you could base it off of this year alone and say, okay, if we have a universal aero kit, what are we going to do? The more powerful engine is the Honda engine. It is more susceptible to engine failures because of that power, but I, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, I think the big thing in question is, can Michael Andretti become the third car owner in the history of the Indy 500 uh, to go three, conse- three consecutive victories? You know, Lou Moore did it back in the 40s, and Roger Penske did it in the early 2000s with Gilles DeFerrin and, and Elio Castroneves. You know, can he be the third one to do it? And I, I think that would be a really cool story in its in its own right, especially when you look at the fact that we're entering a new IndyCar era. It's going to be so tough to do it next year because we know, regardless of it being an even playing field, there's no there's no discount for resources, and those are the benefits of being at, at a place like Team Penske. They haven't won one in a while, and I'd probably put them as the early favorites if I'm a betting man on anybody, especially when the playing field's level. Um, but yeah, I mean, that being said, I know a little off topic, like usual on the Takuma thing. I think he's going to be fine at RLL. I think he'll be fine. I think that'll benefit the team as a whole. Uh, you know, number one, they've, Graham has been wanting a teammate for the full season. And, and Bobby also has been wanting to run a two car team. Takuma brings a little bit of funding from, uh, both Panasonic and, and there's a little bit of Honda money that comes with Takuma. And I think that. You know, the Ray Hall team has been one of the top Honda teams, you know, on a smaller scale where, where you know, Ray Hall has uh, been able to jump in there and and win races. You know, he uh, swept uh, swept uh, Detroit last year. Two years ago, yeah. contended for the championship. He was there right up to the last race. So I think uh, overall it strengthens, strengthens the uh, Ray Hall team. But, uh, yeah, I think Takuma – in retrospect, had he known that uh, that Michael was going to stay with Honda, and he didn't know, um, maybe he's thinking, "Oops!" I, but uh, we'll see I how mean, it works out for him. I'll say this though: just to, if you could do something unique this year 
or entering 2018. I think that this is the perfect thing for RLL. I think Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, you've got a driver in Graham Ray Hall who can win races, who is starting to really hit his stride consistently year in and year out after many years of being questioned um, about different things. I, I think that when you get a chance to see him starting to enter the prime of his career, the more resources you can add to that team to help level them and get them up. We're in for a very unique season next year. Schmidt Peterson's going to be improved. A lot of teams are going to be improved. You don't really look at this and, and expect anyone to really take a back seat. Bordet's back, hopefully for a full season, barring any weird injuries, uh, crashes like what happened at Indy last year. I, going back, since we're reviewing a few things, if you could look at the whole season and, and look at that one moment, if that one moment doesn't happen to Bordet, He's challenging for the championship, period. Uh, there's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, Dale Coin Racing would have been in championship contention for this title, going head-to-head with Joseph Newgarden and company. And I think that, um, you know, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen entering next year. There's still maybe a few things to play, play out with, uh, you know, potentially Harding Racing being full-time next year. That's what's been kind of on the – on the cards for a while. And you also look at Carlin making some moves, maybe uh, quietly behind the scenes. They're getting ready to possibly go full season next year. Maybe a two car effort with Kimball and Max Chilton is what's been largely talked about, um, you know, and move this to, uh, to Harding a little bit more. Um, the announcement today that Brian Barnhart race control of IndyCar being revealed as uh as now the president at harding racing so he takes a step away from the series role that he's known for a very long long time and i moves over back into a team role which he hasn't i don't believe he's been at for 20 25 years so uh, been, you gotta go been back a minute, and, yeah been a minute alan sir alan sir jr days so um and, and alan jr is there uh right there working for harding racing as well yeah so, he's kind of the the driver coach if driver you will coach, yeah. Uh, yeah of, of gabby chavez who's Damn good shoe. And you got Larry Curry, very well-respected team manager over there. And then you got his son, uh, Mike, who's on the pit box, former Indy 500 winner. So they may be a new team. They did good in three starts last year. I know the result at Pocono wasn't what they were wanting. The qualifying effort was certainly there. But a top 10 in their debut at Indy, a fifth place at Texas, they're going to be one to watch entering next season. But we'll save that thing for the preview entering next year but yeah, a lot of good things a lot now, of good things to like going into next year let me pose a question well gray i wanted to let josh jump in he had a comment here oh um what well, i just I, I wanted to throw my hat in the ring with the whole takuma i mean i think takuma fits the mold for a second driver at rll i mean i know that i know that that graham was very he was very praising of of Oriole Servia for a, for a, for a long time. And, you know, and Servia is, I mean, I would say Servia is good for supporting, for supporting a, a second team effort. I mean, him, him and Graham were good teammates at Newman Haas. They both got, they both got that same education, but it's just Oriole. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I love the guy to death. It's just, he, he hasn't, uh, I mean, unfortunately he's had a lot of bad luck with, with the team, with losing rides in recent years, not of his own doing, but, you know, Oriole could uh, Oriole could contend for for a championship, but I think I think Takuma. I mean, I think Takuma exercised a lot of demons by by winning Indy last year. I mean, easily those last ten laps of Indy were probably the best ten laps of his life. And you know, and we saw throughout the year. You know, we we didn't see as many of the as many of the cataclysmic mistakes 
consistently. I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean, he, other, he seemed to be Texas. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say Texas probably probably would be the only one. I mean, he was more he was more let down. He was more let down by his by his car having issues than anything else. So, I mean, I think I think having a the bolstered two two car two car lineup at RL. I mean, I I think that I, I think I think that's going to be a good pairing. Absolutely. Now, Gray, you want to throw something out? Yeah, you know we're talking about some 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 new teams coming in there, and I wanted to, wanted to ask uh, Joey, how many cars entries you think we'll have at Indy uh, this year? Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Yeah, I think we're going to have a good bump day. I th- yeah. there's some number that was that was given that we already are at twenty-five, mm-hmm. and that's and that's without the confirmation of of Harding Racing. That's without the confirmation of Carlin or some of the extra one-offs that we see whenever teams move to, to an extra ride. So uh, I think we're going to end up right at 35, which is really going to stretch the limit of the engine manufacturers because there's only so many engines to go around. Yeah. But it's been a minute since we've had a natural bump day, and I think, but I think we're really going to get one. Yeah, I was hoping we would this year. It sounds like there's going to be a lot more interest this year too. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So um, with that being said, I, you know, we're uh, – Hour and twenty minutes into our show here, I want to get into uh, the last bit just for fun. I've, I've got a little grab bag of topics here that want to pull pull them out of the bag and uh, or actually, actually it's a Tupperware, not a bag or a hat. Thank you. <laughs> but but I've I've actually pre-selected the first topic, um, and I'm gonna throw it to you, Richard, since uh, you had to question me on the hat thing. But uh, the first topic <laughs> is. Undoubtedly, probably the biggest motorsport story uh, of last year, and that would be Alonzo. Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant, wasn't it? I mean, it got people uh, excited again about, uh, you know, Indy 500 from the European side, and I think it increased the popularity and the interest, at least in Formula 1, a little bit from uh, some of the U.S. markets. And, I mean, I think it said a lot about uh, the situation when um, there was more people watching... Uh, Alonso's practice day at Indy, then they watched the Phoenix race, uh, which I think said everything you need to know on, on on that level. And also, it was quite telling. Uh, I, I don't know if it was uh, Sky TV or just the general um, international feed for the Formula One race. A lot of the McLaren personnel were asked what their highlight of the uh, Formula One season was in 2017. A little bit tongue in cheek, I think, with the uh, you know, given the Honda scenario. But uh, Alonso's answer was the Indy 500, which <laughs> tells you everything you need to know about what he thought of the whole uh, whole month. And he said he enjoyed being competitive. And uh, it's a shame we're not going to see him back there uh, this year. But I think he'll have a, a real chance at, uh, at Monaco, which is, in all fairness, where he belongs at the moment. But it, you know, it sort of lent his hand to him taking part in Le Mans, and uh, I believe he's doing the Daytona uh, race um, in, in January. Uh, I believe Lance for United Auto Sport. Yep, which is Zach Brown's uh, team, I believe, isn't it? The uh, mm-hmm. he's also involved with because he's the uh, senior guy at McLaren now. But it, um, I believe, also we're seeing Lance Stroll uh, take part in uh, Daytona as well. Uh, I believe, but I think it's good. You know, this hopefully is like the uh, start of seeing Formula One drivers do what they do best. You know, these guys are race drivers, and we want to see them in cars. We want to see them out there racing. 
um, you know, not just Formula One cars. It's great to see them in different environments and uh, different scenarios. So hopefully we're going to see a little bit more of that. And I'm sure Liberty loved the concept of that, getting a bit more airtime, if you like, for, uh, you know, some of their drivers in different environments and, and, and dragging people in from different sports to uh, to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the... Um, oh, oh can, can I go ahead, Frank? Yes, go right ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I think overall, you know, you know, dri- driving the interest is um, that, that 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 that's one interesting thing to note about Fernando running Indy. But overall, I think it's just you know, Fernando is a true, you know, he's he, he's got the same characteristics of a Jimmy Clark or a Graham Hill. It's just you know, you know, the dude just yeah. loves he just loves racing, and you know, I mean, him running the Indy 500, what it wasn't about trying to save the 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 the, the Indy 500 or bring. Bring, bring more more interest in. I mean that the interest will come, sure. But overall, it was just Fernando wanted to make a personal journey, and you know, and and, and, and as we saw during the race, I mean, had his engine not not blown, you know, he, I mean, he could, I think he could have been right up there with Takuma. And I mean, the night before the race, the, ba- the Vegas odds on him were six to one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, I think that the bigger thing with Alonso is the fact that he wants to do this Triple Crown thing. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, there, for so many years, uh, you've got Formula One drivers specialized in Formula One. You know, IndyCar drivers stay in IndyCars. NASCAR drivers stay in the ovals. You've got the occasional crossover guy, say a Kurt Busch or a John Andretti or a Tony Stewart that wants to try both. But um, when was the last time we had an active Formula One driver over over here doing Indy or doing the Daytona 24, you know? So I, I think yeah. it's it opens the gates and it also shows uh, his frustration with his current team uh, that he's just uh, feeling very stagnant there. You, you figure, you know, out of uh, ten manufacturers, you know, uh, the only people that uh, McLaren beat was Sauber. Uh, you know, they finished ninth in the thing. So he, he wants to he wants to be in a competitive seat. Um, and his decision to stay with uh, McLaren next year. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think you look at the numbers. There was a lot of numbers being touted around uh, uh, on the engine uh, side of things. They obviously Mercedes is still the, the the top performing engine, but a lot of these teams do you know quite in depth performance analysis now. And um, the Ferrari engine was like three percent down on Mercedes, and Renault about six percent down on Mercedes, and the the Honda power unit was like eleven percent down on the Mercedes. So there's a big big gap there, and, and to a certain extent, that transition to Renault. It is pretty much, I wouldn't say free performance, but it's a guaranteed step up from where they are. Um, and to a certain extent, McLaren are going to, you know, make themselves sound good. But they're they're saying from an aerodynamics point, you know, perspective, they believe their aerodynamic efficiency is up there with uh, the Red Bull car, which you know is very believable. I mean, you look at the 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 um, uh, lead aerodynamicist at uh, McLaren is a former. Red Bull uh, aerodynamics there, so you can quite easily see that there's a lot of similarities between those two vehicles and those two uh, configurations. So they're, they're going to be there or thereabouts, and I think um, I think Alonso probably. No, you can say as much as you like about how good Alonso is as a driver, but I think most people would admit he hasn't always made the best career decisions in terms of where and when he makes a move. Hopefully, you'll finally get one right and, and stick stick with the team, and they will be competitive. Uh, but um, yeah, partly there was no other options really available to him. I think the only other 
realistic opportunity for him was probably to go to IndyCar. And I think he's still got some unfinished business uh, in F1 um, before he makes that transition. I think I think he'll probably have another couple more years, maybe three years in F1. And I think you will see him make that transition to IndyCar. Um, you know, that'll be interesting. But I think he, I think he's probably made the right decision sticking where he is. Whether McLaren will be championship winning, probably not. But race winning, I think they've got a very good chance next year, yeah. All right, so uh, Fernando Alonso trying to do everything back with McLaren. I mean, this guy, he's, you know, there have been two guys win four championships apiece since he's won his last one. And he's, even Lewis Hamilton said uh, Alonso was driving better than he ever has. Uh, if he was in a top yeah. car, it, it'd be awesome to see. So, but anyway. Well, you know, you, you mentioned we mentioned earlier, you know, Van Dorn did have an opportunity to pass him in the standings um, going into Abu Dhabi. I mean, uh, Alonso, you know, in all fairness, has some pretty good PR people. You know, he does like, uh, you know, people do believe what he says because in all fairness, there's no real um, mark for where he is. You know, he can say he's driving fantastically, but the car's terrible. Who are we to, who are we to, to doubt that? You know, we don't have a mark. We don't have a, uh, a sort of stake in the ground to compare that against. So, uh, you know, that's not to say he isn't driving fantastically. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he does like to, um, you know, big himself up for one of a better phrase. <laughs> yeah, so, listen, I'm going to pull something out of this uh, little Tupperware I have here, okay? It's and, not a sandwich, uh, is it? Huh? No. No, not a, it's not uh, a sandwich. It's, it's actually the name of a driver. I'm, I'm going to throw this one to Seth, because Seth has been sitting over here quiet and patient. And the name on this little piece of paper is William Byron. Uh, well, William Byron, he pretty much lit the Xfinity Series on fire this year. Uh, let's see, four wins. He made the playoffs as a rookie. He won the championship as a rookie. Second rookie to ever win the NASCAR Xfinity Series championship. The first one was Chase Elliott in 2014. Uh, he's going to be moving up to the Cup Series with Hendrick Motorsports taking over the number 24. I mean, what can uh, essentially what can you say about him that hasn't already been said? He won Rookie of the Year. The only thing he didn't win was Most Popular Driver. That went to Elliott Sadler, his teammate. Uh, I mean, the kid came from iRacing. The kid came from Short Tracks. He only so started racing chance. when he, nice. <laughs> but he only started racing when he was 14 years old, and he's 19 now, 20. So in six years, he's gone from the lowest level there is to the top level. I don't know if anyone has moved up that quickly, so and Seth, he is Seth. very talented. Do you think he's getting pushed in a cup car too quickly? Because I know that was a concern of a certain Mr. Dale Earnhardt Jr., who said that he needed another year in Xfinity, another two years in Xfinity before he could move up to cup. And now he's going to be thrust into that role. Um, I mean, uh, do you think he's going to excel? Do you, th you think it's fair to him? But uh, uh, yeah, obviously, if you look at who he's up well, against, there's a bunch of other young guys getting pushed right in there, too. That and also, he has a little bit of an advantage with the car, at least the Chevys, 
because they're switching to the Camaro ZL1, no other driver in a Chevrolet has driven that in the Cup Series. So in that sense, he's on a level playing field to a certain degree with other Chevy drivers. Otherwise, is he being moved up too quickly? Probably by the same time. Just about everyone's being moved up quicker than we've seen in years. So, I mean, Eric Jones got moved up quickly. Daniel Suarez, Chase Elliott. Uh, the list goes on and on. The One of the biggest examples is Joey Logano, and he struggled for the first three or four years until he switched to Team Penske. So, as far as whether or not he'll struggle, I think he'll struggle the first third half of the season. But I think towards the end of the season, he'll probably be running up front. All right. Well, we we able to see that. So, Gray, you have any thoughts on uh, uh, young I William Byron? He, I'm not sold on him yet. Uh, I think um, he was put in. A, he's he was put. In, he's been in very good equipment from 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 the top. He hasn't. Uh, I still think he 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 hasn't. You know, for lack of a better term, he hadn't paid his dues, and I think that's going to come gonna gonna become more evident in the cup series uh big big jump between the xfinity series and the cup series and that that jump has gotten to me uh, to be the, the the divide is 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 a lot larger there's a long way between the cup garage and the xfinity garage and I think we're going to see some growing pains. He's going to be in good equipment. He's going to show some flashes from time to time. But I think uh, you know the grind of the cup uh, of the cup series uh, and the length of the races is a big difference when you when you're used to running 200 mile races and then all of a sudden running 400 and 500 mile races week in and week out. So uh, I think he's his learning curve. Is going to be uh, going to get a little bit more steeper, and he's going. To, we're going to see some peaks and valleys uh, in his season next year. Now, Joey, I see you've typed something in the chat here that you're saying that uh, Daniel Hemrick is greater than young Mister Byron. So uh, I'd be interested to hear your thought there. I actually didn't think that was going to happen on the air. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think, you know, kind of to Gray's point, I, I look at somebody like Daniel Hemrick who has paid his dues. You know, he's he's in his mid twenties. Uh, he's not always been in the best equipment. We've seen him, <clears throat> seen him race you know, short tracks all over the place. Uh, and you know, I, I think that if you had somebody like Daniel Hemrick who is a little bit more seasoned, who understands the ins and outs of racing, who has gone up against the struggle and come out on the on the better side of it, you put him in that kind of equipment. And I think Daniel Hemrick is going to be winning a hell of a lot more races than William Byron. I, I think Byron's a good talent, and I think over the long haul, he might be the, the smart money. But this feels the same way that a, a Kyle Busch situation felt at, at Hendrick. Um, you know, I, I look at somebody that they really let go of, and that was Landon Castle. That when, when the economy fell and he lost the, the General Motors um, backing in that situation, that was really somebody that NASCAR lost out on to put in a top ride because he's also another talent who's unique, who who has a unique fan base, is fun on social media and does those things. And 
you know, damn good race car driver takes care of equipment. Uh, I don't necessarily know that um, Byron has paid his dues the same way that those other guys have. And, and at the time, Landon didn't either, um, but he's paid his dues since. Um, so, I, you know, that's just kind of my, my point on that is I feel like I need I need a driver that has more seasoning. I'm tired of seeing these 19 and 20-year-olds in rides. I want to see these guys that are 25, 26, 27 like it used to be. Those days are gone. Don't get me wrong. I know that. But, uh, you know, I want to see guys who have gone up against and actually struggled and come out ahead. Just a little uh, side note on William Byron and Daniel Hemrick. Uh, the first super late model that William Byron uh, uh, drove was owned by Daniel Hemrick. And he finished, uh, I want to say, in the top five in that race. He beat a few regulars that run super late models and also his future teammate, Chase Elliott in that, but yeah, they used to little, run late. They used to run legend races against each other over there in yeah, Charlotte. Too, yeah, didn't they? yes, so. they did. And uh, Hemrick had records that stood until this year. Uh, he still has two records. I want to say all time wins, and I think uh, there's one other. I think most races run in a row or something like that. All right, good discussion about that. Let's. Uh, I'm going to pick another thing out of the hat here, and. Uh, Throw it to. Uh, I'm gonna throw this one to you, Josh. Uh, name in here is, and Joey, you can jump in too. Name in here is Ed Jones. Um. Well, he, he was a very. I mean, I, I would say he he's a he was a very welcome welcome surprise. I mean, I, I mean the I mean the I mean I would say that just just by how well how well he ran he ran at Indy and. How you know just in that whole situation? I mean, he he essentially had had to had to become the the team lead after after Bourdais after Bourdais crashed and they lost their 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 primary driver. He qualified the car in the top ten and then and and then and then he he went straight to the front and you know and and, and I mean his track record in Indy Indy Lights on ovals has always been really good despite not not winning a race. I mean he lost a race by about four or five inches last year in the freedom 100. But I mean, overall, I think, um, I mean, I, I think, I think Ed, I think Ed laid down his mark in a, in, I mean, the second coin car is normally gone to, has normally gone to a ride buyer, but as we, we saw how Dale coin racing has improved their engineering staff by 10th, by 10th fold. And that that's, and you know, for, for Dale to do that has been, has been awesome. But, and, but, but now, you know, after winning rookie of the year, he's, Gone. Now he's he's the no, number two man at number two man at Ganassi. So I think I mean uh, I I think you know I I think the pairing of him and Dixon. I mean they're they're somewhat similar in personalities. Of they're both very they're both very calm and calm and reserved. You know both in and in, in and out of the cockpit. But I mean I think that's I, I I think Ed Jones was a very good welcome surprise this year. Yeah, I mean, his story is is one of the more unique ones because I remember covering the the Indy Light season finale in Laguna Seca a couple of years ago, and he he won the championship when his when a teammate kind of came in there and and you know gave him that position with two laps left um, to to beat Santoni, uh, Santiago Urrutia by by a single point, and I th- I think that since then we've seen Santi. He had to run another year in Indy Lights, and now he says he's got the money to go to IndyCar, but we still haven't heard anything. Meanwhile, Ed Jones has just gone on to do Ed Jones things, and that's run consistent, 
and and in some ways run better than we expected. Like not a lot of people expected him to go in and do what he did in Indianapolis. That's obviously the highlight. But I think when you look at what he was able to accomplish when Sebastian Bourdais was gone with that injury and take over as kind of the leader of that team amid driver chaos, not knowing who's going to rotate in. This week it's James Davison. The next week it's Tristan Vautier. Uh, not knowing who his teammate's going to be, yet we're still seeing Dale Coyne Racing further themselves in the program and still be just as fast. I think it says a lot about his character. Uh, I think it says a lot about his ability and to work with engineers, his feedback. And, I mean, you know, Josh pointed out that he's the number two man at Ganassi. Yeah, they've trimmed down to two cars. Yes, he's the number two man among two guys. But that's a pretty damn good place to be in, especially when you look at what they're trying to build at Ganassi because and they stretch themselves too thin, maybe got too much information with too few engineering and trying to too many people wearing too many hats at the same time. Now they're kind of accordioning everything back together. I think it's a smart move going down to two cars, especially when you're trying to move the whole program forward because you can't just base everything anymore around Scott Dixon. He's got many years left, but it certainly wouldn't hurt if you kind of got back into the years of, of having Jimmy Vassar and Alex Zanardi where they were just ridiculously dominant. And uh, that or, was a good time in, in or, racing. Or so even, I, even if you go back to the years when they had Dario and Scott. I mean, you yeah. Know, every, every, ever since Dario left the sport, uh, you know, Ganassi's been built around Scott Dixon. And even, you know, Tony Kanaan coming in, it really didn't make an impact in the number two car. So if they can have a solid uh, two-car team with both guys on equal footing, you know, where, where Ed, Ed has an equal chance to win a race with Scott, it's good for the sport. Yeah, and I, I think the biggest thing here is making sure that the layoffs that they had at Ganassi, we've seen a lot of those guys go on to Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports and other places over the offseason. So I guess my biggest question isn't even around Ed Jones right now. It's did did CG did, did CGR keep the right people to build this program forward? Because we know that, yes, driver feedback is incredibly crucial. I know that Ed is the right person to have in there along with Scott, but who else do they have to coordinate with them? So that being said, um, excited about that. Ed Jones, hell of a season. Should have won. I understand Fernando Alonso mania. Ed Jones should have been, if nothing else, co-rookie of the year for, for the Indy 500 this year to finish third without a nose cone, uh, to have some of the performances he did uh, race that, that Dale Coyne car above and beyond, in my opinion. Yeah, and then that's, uh, that's been was hotly debated in the early part of June, so but uh, next topic I have in here, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this one at Gray, and the name I have in here is uh, Furniture Row Racing. Wow, yeah. Uh, well, they came on the scene uh, full time in, uh, in in 2010, and of course they had their growing pains, and, and up until that they got a big win with uh, Reagan Smith at uh, at Darlington, winning the Southern 500. And they, you know, had some success for a single-car team. Then they became a uh, an alliance team with Richard Childress Racing and and, stre- and strengthened uh, throughout, that, throughout that arrangement. And then came the Toyota deal that they, that they were able to broker and, and get involved with Joe Gibbs Racing. And that really opened the – that was a springboard to their success. Last year they uh, – they had uh, a dominant car in many races, uh, didn't win as many as they probably should have, uh, 
seems like bad luck would always befall the team, but uh, they ran, led a lot of laps and ran very strong, and that was just sort of a precursor to what we what we saw this year. And he dominated the circuit and laps led and and and, and races won and and prevailed and won the championship. So uh, it's been it's been a, a fun rise, uh, you know, to watch uh, that team come along. Uh, they do it uh, a little bit different than the than the mainstream NASCAR teams do. They're located in, in Denver, Colorado, uh, far away from the uh, from the hotbed of the sport in the in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. So they've kind of done things uh, done things their own way. And uh, I think uh, I think the emergence of Furniture Row has really, to me, has been a breath of fresh air uh, in our sport. Yeah, I think that- and. I, I, sorry, sorry, Seth. Um, I, I think personally, I think it's short lived. But before that, thinking all that stuff, I'll ask this, Gray. Uh, the only reason I interrupted you, Seth, I promise. Uh, what do you think the impact of this is having Barney Visser be the first car owner not named Joe Gibbs or Hendrick or, or Penske to win a championship in recent memory? I, I think it's a good thing in that uh, it, it shows the sport to be a, just a little bit more diverse. I think on that hand, I mean, as far as as far as a di- different owner, but but you got to look a little bit deeper into it and in, in, in their affiliation with Toyota and their affiliation with Joe Gibbs. So in, in some regards, it, it's somewhat of a uh, of a satellite operation into the fact that they get some chassis and some technical support from uh, from uh, Joe Gibbs. But there again, I can tell you from experience with uh, with Furniture Row when they were an alliance team with, with uh, RCR, there's some smart guys at that thing. And they, they went about their business doing things their way. And we benefited as much from that alliance, you know, with, with information coming from them as, as, as information coming from us to, you know, back and forth, it was a it was very much reciprocal, but we got a lot of benefit from, from our association with, with Furniture Road. And I had that same discussion with some guys from Joe Gibbs early on when they first, uh, first teamed up because Joe Gibbs, you know, having a full car operation, they, some of those guys were a little bit concerned about stretching some of their resources a little thin and what it, and if it would diminish their effort. And I told them that, you know, uh, Furniture Row would bring a lot to that table, and, and they, would, they would actually uh, help that whole Toyota equation, and I think it did, uh, throwing the 78 team in with the, uh, with the four uh, Gibbs Toyotas, strengthen their uh, uh, posture in the sport. And not only did they win the championship this year, they also won Rookie of the Year this year with Eric Jones. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was a brand-new team, the 77, which unfortunately due to sponsorship is not going to be around next year. But Furniture Row isn't releasing anybody. They're just reorganizing where those uh, employees are. On top of that, uh, Martin Truex Jr. and Sherry Pollock's uh, it's been well documented everything they've gone through this year. They were honored today with the Myers Brothers Award for their charitable work uh, fighting cancer. 
So, or fighting juvenile cancer, I should say. So you have a lot of different things between all of their bad luck, all of their good luck and everything, and just how different of a team they are. Man, all good stuff, all good stuff there. Now, Can I just, uh, very quickly, I did want to, uh, to, to make a point very, very quickly. Um, you actually touched on it a little bit there. Obviously, the 77 team uh, disbanding there. It, it does sort of highlight a little bit how or where the sport is when you have a teammate to... Um, you know, the championship winning car not being able to find sponsorship for 2018. Uh, I'm sure they could have found a, you know, a competent driver to fill that, uh, to fill that seat uh, at worst. So it, it does sort of highlight some of the struggles that, uh, you know, if they can't find sponsors and what, uh, what chance do the rest of the field have? Yeah. And, and you got to look at the fact that, uh, you know, monster energy is not yet committed to uh, 2019 and, you know, the IndyCar series is looking at uh, life beyond Verizon after 2018. So, uh, you know, if, if the series can't find a sponsor, it, it bodes bad for the guys in the sport. And, you know, on the, on the side, in Formula One, uh, you know, Santander, who's a, it's a global banking corporation that's backed Ferrari uh, to the tune of uh, 250 million pounds a year, um, is exiting for there to uh, sponsor the UFEA soccer or as you call it, Richard, football. The Champions League, yes. Yes, yes. Yep, that's where they're putting their money. Uh, and rather it's pronounced than, UEFA. UEFA, yeah. I think UEFA is the word you're looking for there. Silly American. Silly American. Should we do a football show during the off-season? Uh, yeah, yes. yeah. You and Joey could do one all on okay, your own. Cool. So, uh, Richard, <laughs> Richard, this next, this, this next name I pulled out of my little Tupperware is for you. And that is, that is Carlos Sainz. Junior or senior? Junior. Okay, just checking. Um, yeah, he sort of escaped the uh, the Red Bull uh, uh, sort of grasp a little bit. I believe he's on loan, isn't he, with, uh, with Renault? But you could quite easily see that uh, transition becoming a permanent one. Almost... Almost got a little bit unlucky, I think, when uh, when Max Verstappen got sort of promoted ahead of him to the Red Bull senior team. Because I, apart from the hype and apart from uh, Josh Verstappen, I don't really see there was much that Max did better than Carlos Sainz, really. Um, it's the apart- William Byron effect. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think he's a fantastic, phenomenal driver and... You know, he's he sort of been taken to the wing a little bit over the last few years by Fernando Alonso, and they've grown up, or he's grown up with Alonso sort of mentoring him, for want of a better word. And, uh, you know, he didn't go the uh, the typical route of the, uh, as it was in the GP2 or the uh, the F2 route. I believe he went through Formula Renault 3.5, which is a great series that produced some fantastic drivers through there. And I believe Max Verstappen went the same route as well a little bit. Uh, so, you know, they... I feel sorry for him in a way that he has been overshadowed by Max, but hopefully being in the Renault car and I think doing these like last three or four races this year for Renault will help him massively next year. But, you know, turn up in Melbourne and know what's happening. He's not sort of, you know, going to it fresh. He, he knows what to expect there and he, he'll hopefully uh, have a decent uh, start there. And, and up against Hulkenberg, he's a, Hulkenberg's a pretty, pretty damn good benchmark, really. Uh, and if you can go out there and you can give Hulkenberg a run for his money, then you're doing something right. So, uh, Carlos Sainz Jr., 
if he's one of those drivers that if he gets the right car at the right time can undoubtedly become a champion. Whether yeah. he whether he has the personality to create that opportunity, as I say, like a Lewis Hamilton has done, like uh, Max Verstappen and Sebastian Vettel have done, they've created that opportunity by the way they carried themselves. I don't think Carlos Sainz is quite such a um, you know supporter of his own ability in the public eye, for want of a better word. So... You know, maybe he's going to have to work a little bit harder for it. But I think if an opportunity does come along, I think he will be extremely competitive, and, and hopefully he will take the opportunity because I think he has a huge amount of potential. I think that the only way that Carlos Sainz goes back to Red Bull is if Daniel Ricciardo leaves. There's the, no other way that I see Sainz going back unless. It's but then the you look at team. where does that leave Pierre Gasly and guys like that? You know, that is yeah. what we did. We've discussed this on the show many, many times the benefits and the hindrances of that Red Bull junior category. I think that there's something to be said about a Spaniard and a Renault car doing really well. I mean, we saw Fernando Alonso do really well, and let's not forget that you talk about carrying themselves really well. Maybe this is a Spaniard thing, because we remember Fernando Alonso, people forget, he actually he raced for a year, and then he sat for a year, and then he came back for the full year. He was a test driver for one season of his whole he career. Was, yeah. So, for Carlos Sainz, I think it's a matter of that personality being gravitated towards his ability and what we see on track. The camera doesn't go to him. Usually it only follows Vettel and it only follows Hamilton, and it'll occasionally, it doesn't even follow Botas as much as it, it follows some of the other guys like Ricardo, who obviously Ricardo's awesome for the camera and, and awesome for the public and stuff like that. But I think that without a doubt, Sainz is world champion material, and I think that he is the perfect fit to. Him and Hulk together can boost Renault's program up yeah. out of where they are, and they could. I could see them threatening Red Bull Racing next season for third oh, without in the overall, doubt. within the constructors' championship. If they're that doubt. good, and uh, it, it, you know, you hear um, you know some of the murmurings coming out of Toro Rosso towards the end of the year about the Renault engine package that they've been providing. It'll be uh, you know, I'm sure Christian Horner has got his. Uh, Excuse is already very well uh, well prepared for that scenario next year because I can easily see that happening. They've they've always been a good team, you know. The, going back in the years, I mean, goodness me, back in the in the early eighties, out of that facility at Enston in Oxfordshire, that was the Tolman team. Then it became Benetton. Then it was Renault. Then sort of Lotus or whoever it was. It wasn't really Lotus, but somebody that decided to use the name Lotus decided to try and destroy that organization. Um, and, and Renault, in all fairness to them, you, they've got to give Renault a lot of credit there. They've, I wouldn't say reluctantly, but you can never imagine that they really wanted to get back into it. Maybe they had a little bit of a sort of nostalgic uh, you know, concept about a lot of the people that were still there were based around that old Renault team. So they went in there and they've gone and restructured that team and they're, you know, they're recruiting it from an engineering standpoint at a quite a frenetic rate. And... Uh, you know, you really do hope that they can get back there. I mean, it's great for Formula One, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about, you know, Renault, resurgence of Renault, the resurgence of McLaren. You've got, you know, you know Red Bull are going to be up there. You know Mercedes are going to be up there. You know uh, Ferrari are going to be up there. You know, there could be four, five, six manufacturers. You know, you could have a, a leading manufacturer not getting in the points next year because the competition is going to be so tight. It can be fantastic. I, I tell you, certainly can be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, but, but I got go, one go last ahead, point Joey. for you, Frank. Go ahead. 
we talked a little bit about Britain, Britain drivers and, and Silverstone and, and Germany and, and Vettel and things of that sort. I think what's key when when you, I look at this situation, you've got a French manufacturer in Renault. There's the potential for four, maybe five guys from from France or nearby, you know, like Monaco with Charles Leclerc, that would could be on the grid next year. I, Grosjean says he's from France, even though he's born in, in Switzerland, but he takes under the French flag. Lots of guys are, are like that. And we're returning to France at Paul Ricard next year. I think that they are in a prime situation as a country. We see them, they, they are whooping everybody's tail in, in WRC. And I, obviously, we got Pagano and Bourdais and IndyCar. I think we can finally say that um, you know we, we thought we had somebody really special in Jules Bianchi before the unfortunate happened in F1. I think it's safe to say, though, that that, that little mark that, that was in F1 – we can kind of look ahead more positively now on France's presence in Formula One because they are definitely doing some good things. I'll tell you what, when I first started watching Formula One, there was this big push from both, uh, led by Renault, to get some French drivers into Formula One and uh, also backed by um, Gitans, the uh, cigarette factory that uh, was with the Ligier team. And, and they pushed all these really good names in the F1. You're talking uh, GPR Jabouille, um, Depaillet, uh, Jacques Lafitte, uh, Alan Prost, um, René Arnoux. Uh, and you had a, a big influx of uh, uh, French guys in the sport there in the late 70s and early 80s. And all these guys were good, and they finally got their first French champion in Prost, although he won it with McLaren and not with Renault. But, um, you know, it's nice to see resurgence of Renault. It's nice to see those uh, old yellow and black colors back on the car. So uh, we wish Carlos Sainz the best and Renault team. Um, although, why Renault need to be successful with a Spaniard, not a French guy, I don't know. So, But uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and look at this uh, thing again. I've got one. For, I'm going to throw this one at Chris, okay? Um AJ Foyt Motorsports. Wow. Uh, that's kind of a uh, wild card. The beginning of the season was definitely not up to um, what AJ is hoping for. Um, they obviously had a massive uh, amount of change this year with having one car in Indiana and one car in Texas. They had to split the uh, split the shop duties up, of course, which isn't always an easy thing to do in a series like this, um, like IndyCar, and Connor Daly did a good job later on in the year with scoring a fifth place at Gateway. He did a fantastic job, and for me, it showed that the chemistry that he was his team was building in Indianapolis was working, and it was starting to produce results. Unfortunately, it took him a bit of a while to get there. I think the team made a good move signing Tony Kanaan. I think that he'll help that program out, and having his, engine, his chief engineer join the team from Ganassi is going to be a great addition to the team as well. However, I'm still not 100% sold on the addition of Matthias Leist to the program because I believe that he was not completely consistent this past year in Indy Lights and would benefit from having another year in Indy Lights. I think that Connor Daly should have gotten that seat alongside Tony Kanaan, and it could have helped out the team a bunch, especially considering, you know, 
where Connor Daly came from. Now, speaking of Connor Daly, right? Right. Speaking of Connor Daly, um, he still haven't signed a contract for next year. Um, Alexander Rossi is telling him the rent is due. Um, the, one of the few seats remaining left is the uh, the number twenty car um, to do the road courses alongside Ed Carpenter running the ovals. Um, do you think that's a spot, possible landing spot for Connor Daly, or do you think that's uh, uh, that ship has sailed and that's going to go to uh, somebody with a, with a, that can write a check? I think Connor Daly has a few options available to him, and he just has to go through the pros and cons of each one. Sure, Ed Carpenter Racing, he can run the 20 car on the road and street courses. Spencer Piggott did a decent enough job with that car last year. But you'll still miss out on a good portion of the season, including the Indy 500, unless you can find another rider, unless Carpenter can get a third car going for that one. Um, Dale Coyne Racing so far has only one driver signed with Bourdais. I don't think they've signed the second driver. Um, then again, unless I might have missed something in the last few weeks, I don't know. No, um, nothing, nothing, nothing solid but, there. I mean, R.C. Enerson has uh, uh, come up in conversation, as has uh, Gutierrez, but uh, no, nothing, you know, I think Dale Coyne this year is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a week before, uh, a week before we get uh, to the season over that we see uh, who the second car is. Like usual. Then we have, um, you know, a bunch of different other options out there. I mean, we know that Harding Racing is looking at running Gabby Chavez full-time, but I think unless my memory serves me right, they, Mike Harding was talking about trying to run a second car. If he can run a second car part-time when you have Alan Jr. and Matt Curry and Larry Curry on the same team, you know, a part-time ride with them might be a good, decent uh, opportunity for Connor. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about having decades' worth of entrenched people there trying to, you know, work their own agenda instead of working at making the cars as quick as possible. All right, well, we'll have to see what happens with Connor, and we'll have to see what happens with A.J. Foyt. So uh, this next little topic I picked out of the bag here is I'm going to throw this one to Seth, Danica Patrick. Uh, well, let's uh. see. <laughs> uh, it, it was her last season. uh she she didn't make a lot of noise in her uh, NASCAR career. Uh, she won the poll at in the 2013 Daytona 500. She scored a handful of top tens. Uh, she's going to run the Daytona 500 next year and the Indy 500 next year. So let's let's dig into that. So she would like to run the Daytona 500 and the Indy 500. Yeah, and she has nothing signed. But realistically, right, she's number one, a publicity machine. Number two, she's on her farewell tour. Um, number three, you know, uh, she's Danica Patrick, and she could probably find a high-profile sponsor willing to write a check that's acceptable to, say, a Chip Ganassi uh, to fund this. I mean, do you think this is possible? 
or or is she, or she or is she grasping at straws because everybody I, has everybody has wished her well but nobody's given her a ride I think it's possible more so that's plausible I don't know if it's actually going to happen um most people would like to see it happen just because of the publicity and the people it would draw in to watch the races. But, um, I mean, other than Ganassi, I don't see many, at least in NASCAR, that could put out an extra car. Uh, you have Team Penske, you have Furniture Row. Other than those two, there aren't many that have the capacity or the amount of room with the charter system and having the limit on four teams max or four charters per owner max. Uh, so that only leaves so many spots in IndyCar. Again, from what I've read and what I've heard, Ganassi is the most likely option, whether or not that happens there. Again, it's all sponsor dependent. Yeah, I think she needs to bring a check to the table. But, I mean, and I'll throw this to you, Gray. Do you think that her, you know, she's still, you know, pretty high profile, even though, as Josh said, her lemon has no more juice in it. Um, she's still pretty high profile, and it's going to be her farewell tour uh, if she makes it. And she's picking the two highest profile races in in the United States. Do you think she can attract a high high enough dollar sponsor that can write a check that, uh, that Chip Ganassi – or somebody else will say, oh, yeah, okay, good, we'll do this for you. I think she can come up with enough money to run two high-profile races. Oh. And I think, too, if she can if she can get that deal, I don't think she'll have much trouble shopping, shopping that around to find someone that can, can put her in a car because at the moment there are a lot of major teams that do not have their uh, top – cars fully funded for the entire year next year so if she can bring any money to the table uh they can do it with their teams with enough resources the bigger teams uh with personnel uh they can uh they can field a car for for one-off races uh she could take that to to several pieces i mean and a charter won't even come into play this will be a one-off race all she's got to do is have the speed to uh to get in the show, Daytona is a little bit of a tricky deal. If you if you qualify good and you have good speed, uh, you know first day of qualifying, you know that essentially locks you in. And if something comes up and you have to go through the one twenty fives or the one fifties, now you could be cut out. But I do believe if she can come up with uh, with with a, a, a package there, someone will put her in a car. And and same with Indy. I mean that race is you know that race is the biggest race in the one day one day event in the world and uh i'm sure somebody will come along and put her in it because just for the the sheer publicity that she'll attract for the month of may uh her being at indy again and running uh will will more than uh give a return for anybody that wants to to sponsor that so absolutely yeah yeah there'll be there'll be a lot of uh you know, media eyes on it if she does it, but but let's uh, let's talk about you know her career as a whole. You know, she was the darling of IndyCar for a while, uh, and then she went to NASCAR, and she just kind of slowly 
Well, or, or, or rather, or rather quickly tarnished her image, and she's one of the most maligned well, drivers, despite the fact that she comes in and works hard every week. Well, um, well she the biggest thing, biggest thing is she's a female, and she had that stigma she, she had to overcome. Comes well, and that's always going to be the case for any female that goes into to motorsports. Uh, they, that that's that's part of the that's what they're going to have to to face. Um, she did like so many IndyCar people had done in the past. She followed the money. She followed the money the NASCAR, and and of course, I mean, you know, f- from that standpoint, she did well, uh, and she's probably set herself up, for, for, you know, well for the rest of her life if she never drives another lap uh, in a, in a race car. So uh, yeah, her, her her NASCAR career didn't pan out. Uh, you know, like uh, like I'm certain she wanted, or many other people wanted it to to come to, but um, hindsight being 2020, you know, I don't know what uh, how how you know I can Joey and and Chris could probably answer this. How do you think she would have fared uh, staying in IndyCar? Oh, um, silence from Joey and Chris. <laughs> well. Go ahead, Joey. I was trying to I was trying to mute my microphone for courtesy purposes from all the laughter. Um, yeah, that really depends. You know, I, I talked to Bobby Ray Hall uh, last week, and one thing that because we talked we started talking about her and a lot of the talk about next year and what's ahead, and we kind of looked to the past a little bit, and it's like you know we had a lot of women in IndyCar that were pretty pretty damn good. You look at somebody like Sarah Fisher who was great, but never got that top equipment nod. Um, I think that's the female stigma. Exactly. And Danica was really the first to she did really well in Atlantics with with Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan. Uh, Then it was under a different name. I forgot all of it. But uh, then you look at what she did in IndyCar and obviously she did really well fourth her rookie year at Indy. Uh, She's finished as high as third there. And only female that, that has led the 500 uh, up to that point and then finish on podium. So, and, and win an IndyCar race, you know. But I think what's important here is you look at drag racing and a woman winning in drag racing has become normal. Yeah. It's not it's not huge when when we hear uh, about John Force's daughter uh, winning in, in drag racing. And I think that's important. It shouldn't be something that's so monumental. And the sad thing is, is that in, in this kind of culture, that that is the thing. But yeah. I guess to go and answer your question, Frank, I think that if she stayed with Andretti and was in top equipment, I don't know if she ever would have won a championship. I think she finished top five in the championship standings, maybe an extra an extra win or, or three, maybe an Indy 500 win because how well she runs there. Uh, she's, she's solid on ovals. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't really know if she does anything that's, more groundbreaking than what we've seen the women in drag racing do uh, to the level that it's become normal. Yeah, absolutely. So now, uh, Josh and Chris, you guys both want to jump in so you can fight each other to do it, or you can uh, flip a coin to see who goes first. Yeah, I'll. Um, yeah, do you want to flip a coin, Chris? Yeah, you go first. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Danica came in and, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, as 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 Joey was saying, you know, at and before the Indy 500 at the, at the, at that the race of Japan, you know, 
I remember I remember watching watching that race, and, and she was she was leading a lot of laps, and then Indy she was topping topping the speed charts, and 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 it seemed to, and and she she kind of stole the spotlight away from Dan Weldon there um, at at Indy, who actually won won the race, and and but then it's like but then it's like since then I saw Danica. You know, she 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 drew the ire of some competitors. I mean, she was aggressive. She drew the ire of some competitors for being for being an aggressive blocker, which you know she she wouldn't be the first driver to do that. But I would say earlier in Danica's career, before the merger in two thousand eight, Danica is the the competition level was different, and Danica was able Danica on an oval on a strictly oval schedule. Danica was good. The the old the old Indy Indy car with a high high downforce pack racing Danica was good but but as as the series transitioned into a more road racing based schedule like in in 2010 after the first four races she was 16th in points after you know after I think it was Brazil St. Petersburg Barber and Barber and Lombies I think it was she was she was 16th in, in points and if you want to compare women drivers Simona de Silvestro was higher in points in the oldest car on the grid, and Danica was in an Andretti Autosport car, and even her her la- her last two years at Indy, she you know she she struggled to find pace. And remember, in, in 2010, you know she she said on the PA, you know it's not my fault the car's slow, and they, they kind of drew the ire from some people. And then 2011, it was the same old same old story. But then again, Andretti Autosport as a whole was off that year at Indy. I mean, if you look at it, Ryan Hunter Ray even DNQ'd at Indy. But, you know, it's just, and kind of bringing this, I think, full circle, the new IndyCar ha- is, is a much more, is a whole different animal to, to drive. Not only is it turbocharged rather than naturally aspirated, but it's not about, you know, just putting your foot down and, and turning left on an oval. You, you, you know, this new car, you're going to have to lift. And, you know, that, that, that's something that, that Danica has, you know, you know I mean, that's... You know, I think that's something that Danica will struggle with, just just because she's never done it before. But, but, kind of maybe I'm counterpoint counterpointing myself. But I, I think I think running Indy, Indy is a lot more about finesse than it is, you know, overall speed. So to that credit, you know, that's probably why Danica's been so good there. So. You know, we could we could potentially see her go go out with a swan song with a with a top with with a top ten, but I don't foresee her foresee her winning or 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 setting the world on fire on her on her way out. Uh, yeah, neither do the rest of us. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens. So, I've got uh, guys we're like uh, at two hours and eleven minutes. So, I've got one more topic I'm going to pull out of the bag. I'm going to throw it to Chris since he's been. Uh, in and out and in and out. I got one more topic for Chris, and then we're all going to make a bold prediction for 2018, and then we're going to wrap. Then we're going to wrap for the year, and uh, we'll rejoin uh, roundabout Daytona time. So, Chris, your topic to speak about: you go racing slash Kyle Kaiser slash 2018. All right, uh, this should be a good one. You uh, racing is looking at trying to make uh, a full season entry in IndyCar next year. They have Kyle Kaiser for, uh, I think, four or five races for next year. They're working at trying to get more funding to do the rest of the season. But we're going to see Kyle at the Indy 500 uh, with Yunkos Racing. 
we're looking at Kyle trying to run some other races. I'm thinking, you know, given that the Speedway is only three minutes away from the Yunko shop, and I mean that literally, or maybe five at the most, we might see them at the Indy Grand Prix. I mean, it makes sense. You don't have to truck the cars very far. Heck, you can almost throw them there. Um, we have a, a new car owner who's dumped everything he almost everything he owns into racing and he's gotten a lot of return on his investment with Kyle winning Indy lights this year to help get him into IndyCar next year. Um, Yugos makes good decisions on what people to hire and he's going to have a great team behind him to get into next year with IndyCar. All that matters now is getting the funding together to where you can actually run the rest of the races because that's always the most difficult part of it. All right, Joey, any thoughts on uh, Ghost Racing? I know you've talked to Ricardo some. Yeah, I think that, um, number one, it's refreshing to see a South American owner in the sport. I think it's good that there's that diversity. We actually have owners buying into IndyCar, where NASCAR, they're nowhere to be found. That should say something about the economics of the sport, number one. Um, and clearly, one's trending upward, one's not. I think that... Um, I think they're, they've got a good plan. He's he's doing it the right way. He's doing it through the Mazda Road to Indy. It's not just built for drivers. We're seeing that this path that IndyCar's kind of put forth with Dan Anderson of USF 2000 progressing to Pro Mazda, progressing to Indy Lights for the champion to eventually go to IndyCar. It now works with teams, too, and it, it's showcasing with, with Yunkos. He's a smart guy. He's going to do good things. And uh, I'm I'm excited for him. Uh, he's a, he's a, one of the great ones to talk to. Also, uh, he's always there to help and, and give you give you the conversation, give you the quote, no matter how hectic everything is going on. Um, and just just for casual conversation, he's good too. He, he's not bigger than than anything that else that's going on around him. And I think that's important is that through all this growth, he's managed to stay human. So um, you know, I think he's got a bright future as a car owner going ahead, and he's going to do some big things in IndyCar. Frank, what do you think? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I think uh, Ricardo is a great owner for the series. Um, I, I wish they – I hope they can get some more funding to keep Kyle in that car for the whole season. But uh, right now they've got three confirmed. It's going to be Indy, Grand Prix Indy, and then a TBA. Uh, but hopefully he, they're looking for some funding to get, uh, you know, get that thing for all 16 races. I, I'll tell you this much. Um, I know we got to cap this off, but usually the GP of St. Pete, every driver starts with that. Talking to Kyle Kaiser at Sonoma, we talked a little bit about that situation, and he said he, he's from California. He's from, from nearby in San, San Francisco. Santa Clara is just 30 minutes south uh, where he's from. And one of the things that got brought up was like, you know, hey, for Sonoma, for, for Long Beach, races that are near my hometown, I think I could find the funding for it. So. Those are, see, yeah, those are the ones he told me he'd like to do. Yeah, so I, I think that there's a situation where he runs GP, and then we see what he could pull together out of his own pocket for something like Phoenix and Long Beach at the very least, and then you know see what progresses. Obviously, the in-between there is Barber. If he can find a way to springboard Barber somehow, uh, I think he, he can do, realistically, the entire first part of the season. And, you know, and it'll just help him develop as a driver to have that full season behind him, but uh, you know, uh, him and Ricardo will grow together as a team, you know, R- Ricardo has hung his uh, hat on Kyle and, um, you know, R- you know, Ricardo doesn't do things 
you know, spur of the moment. You know, he, he doesn't bite off more than he can chew. And you can see that through his uh, Monster Road Andy program. So, But with that being said, uh, guys, we're way over time. You know, we tried to do a two-hour show, but we couldn't even do that. So, <laughs> so let's go around the table. Everybody, one bold prediction for 2018. I'm going to start with you, Gray. Hmm. Well, uh, I'm going to say we're going to continue to see uh, Toyota's strength in NASCAR next year. I'm going <clears> to <throat> go out and say that uh, I'm going to pick uh, Kyle Busch as the uh, 2018 uh, champion of the series. I do think we'll see. Uh, I think we'll see uh, Mr. Blaney return to Victory Lane. I think we'll also see uh, see good runs by uh, uh, continued good runs by Kyle Larson, and I think we're finally going to get to see um, Mr. Chase Elliott pick up uh, multiple wins next year. He'll re- he'll break out uh, and and win several. All right, Gray, that sounds good. So we're gonna I'm gonna mark you down for Chase Elliott wins multiple races. Richard, one bold prediction for next year. Oh, can I go with two? No, you can have one. No and two. Well, well Gray Not had bad. Gray had three, so you yeah, get one. So. Okay, two. <laughs> two for you, okay. Richard, because I like you. Go ahead. Um Kyle Larson to win the uh NASCAR championship. Uh, he could have won it if he hadn't had uh, his engine blow up towards the end of the season on a couple of occasions. And in the Formula One world, I'm going to say there are going to be in excess of six race, six different race winners next year. Wow, that's pretty bold. That's pretty bold. Okay. Uh, Joey, you're next. You can have one oh, bold prediction, but if you want to, Richard already set the bar for that, so... Hey, Gray had three. Come on. <laughs> Favoritism. Um, well, if we, if we keep uh, going, declining, that means Seth gets minus just, one. Just because I'm British doesn't mean you can discriminate against me. Uh, no, it means we can. It's the exchange rate. Yeah, I was going to say. 1776, um, bro. <laughs> wow. jo- jo- Joey, go ahead, man. Um, mostly because I want to kind of review the off season and save a lot of these predictions for when we come back after the winter. Um, I think Kimi Raikkonen will win a Formula One race next year to set himself up as, I believe, the only guy currently to win in each engine era that they've offered since he debuted in the series. And I think that would be three, three different engineers for him. Maybe four. I'd have to double check that though. All right, Seth. Okay, so I think the trend of veteran drivers retiring is going to continue. I'm going to say Newman and Clint Boyer might retire after next year. So you're saying guys that get older are going to retire. That's your bold prediction. That's really bold. <laughs> Man. Yeah, well. Man, you know what, Seth? Say Jimmy Johnson retires. That'd be bold. Uh, I think if you he doesn't expect Newman okay, to be fair. Okay, how about this? If Harvick and Johnson don't win more than one race, they retire. Okay. Chris, <laughs> it's Chris the last year of Harvick's deal. That makes sense. Chris, you're next. All right. Um, I can also do two predictions. I'm going to do one for IndyCar and one for the Road to Indy. Um, for Road to Indy, I think that Oliver Askew and Victor Franzoni are going to be champions this coming uh, year in the categories they will race in. 
being Promaz and Indy Lights. And for IndyCar, I'm going to go ahead and call it. We're going to have um, another new first-time winner in Ed Jones. Where? I don't know. All right. Bold. Bold. Josh, you're next. Um, I'm only going to take one. Well, I, you can um, have as many as five, I, from what I understand. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Um, bull, pred- bull prediction, Elio Castroneves wins his wins fourth Indy 500. That's, that's a good one. See, that's, that's, no, that's, a, that's, that's a good no, that's bull, a bull prediction, prediction Josh. Chris. Yep. All right. <sighs> now it's my turn. Yeah, do, doing what I do best. Wait, hold on, hold on. Bull prediction, Chris, don't you mean Seth? Referring uh, to you, you're supposed to that old. Ed Jones is going to win a race next year. Yeah, yeah the sky's well, blue. Yeah, and Seth said old guys are going to retire. So I'm going to say a Honda-powered car wins the uh, IndyCar Championship and the Manufacturer Championship. So that's kind of bold. That's good. That's kind of bold, but, but yeah. I'm going to go with that. Won't, won't tell you <laughs> who, won't tell you when, but uh, probably the guy from New Zealand. Anyway, yeah, it is a bold prediction, by the way, because only Dixon's won for Ganassi in the last like three years. So, yeah, it is bold. Yeah, yeah, but uh, what's the last time uh, Honda's won a manufacturer championship? Been a while. So, we're going to go with that. And with that being said, I want to thank each and every one of you guys Gray, Richard, Joey, Josh, Chris, Seth. Appreciate you guys being on. Uh, we're, gonna, we're on our winter hiatus right now. We'll be back right in time to. Uh, break down the Rolex 24 for you sometime in the uh, in the winter months. Uh, but until then, I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network for hosting us. I want to thank iHeartRadio. Uh, and I uh, want to thank all you guys that listen to us. And good night. Talk to you soon. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.